We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And a pleasant good afternoon to all of our IB family out there. I am Vince D'Addario. I am the football analyst here at irishbreakdown.com. And with me, as always, is Brian Driscoll, the publisher at irishbreakdown.com. And today, if I'm looking at my calendar correct on my phone, it's Friday, Mm -hmm. which means it is Friday, free-for-all mailbag. And uh, this is the show that's driven by you guys. So... Uh, make sure you get your questions in. We will go right down the line and answer them as we go. If We've had quest- questions in for over an hour, Vince. That's true. I it's 11.58 it. the first love one. It. That's well played. I love it. Um, but we will answer those in order. If you want to get one in right away, you can super chat it, and we'll go right then and there. Uh, but we will answer everybody's questions, or at least Brian will, because yeah. I got to go at two o'clock. But Brian will answer. Everybody's I can't wait questions. till your semester's over. This is horse pucky. <laughs> June June first, my friend. June first. Yep. Um, believe me, I'm. I've you got know, it do you have any sick days left that you can use on Fridays? I'm just trying to figure this <laughs> well, out. Well, not during the season, unfortunately, because right. then I can't go to practice or a game or whatever. But anyway. So we are going to jump right into this thing. We're going to lead it off with a question from Facebook, I believe, uh, Brian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this one comes to us from Frank Anthony. He says, I'm concerned about the receiving group with all of the uncertainty. Are you concerned? And will a grad transfer help? Uh, you know, 
This is a tough one. I was asked about this question last night, and, and part of my concern comes down to the fact that I just don't feel that this group has been developed the way that it, that other positions have been developed. If I sure. if I had more confidence that Coach Alexander was going to do the job that I think deep down he's capable of, and he has shown it past schools, but not so much at Notre Dame, then I wouldn't be. I'm not worried about it because you, yeah, you look at a situation right. and you say, okay, well if they don't have they, if they don't have Kevin Austin, well a lot of teams around the country would say, okay, well they they've got. Deion Colsey, they've got Joe Wilkins, they've got you know other guys they can use out there. Uh, if you say, well, they 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 lose Avery Davis, okay, you have Lawrence Keys, you have Xavier Watts. If you lose Brayden Lindsey, okay, you got Lorenzo Styles, Xavier Watts, Avery Davis, Joe Wilkins Jr., Lorenzo Styles. I mean, there's so many, there's so much depth of talent here, and yeah, and there's talent, and there's right. a lot of talent, and, and there's there. depth of talent, and that's the big thing for me, Vince. And so it, it's one of those deals where if it's not the talent that I'm worried about. It's not the players that I'm worried about. It's it's will they be utilized correctly and and will they be developed properly? I mean, look, if, if you have a couple injuries and your offensive system is still depending on young receivers to go out there and know four or five different route combinations on each play, depending on where they're lined up, then, yeah, you're not going to be successful, and they're not going to be ready to play. But if you do what every other successful team in the country does when you have young players, which is we're going to take the most talented players and figure out what they do well, and we're going to allow them to do that. And then as we continue to play them and give them experience, they're going to improve. They're going to learn more. They're going to be able to do more. And lo and behold, you're going to go be successful. And well, yeah, that's and, the and big I feel thing like that's I feel like that's hopefully where Notre Dame is right now. I, I feel like with the offensive philosophy that we feel like is there, or at least that they're starting to get to. I right, that, that they are going to get the ball into the hands of these guys, and we're going to see what, what they've got. And I, I'm confident that the, the, of the talent level, I, you brought up the development. That does worry me. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that. That does worry right. me. But I feel like there's enough natural ability and enough natural talent there mm-hmm. where that won't be the position group that we're worried about um, after six games. Yeah, if, but, I am, know. but I am still worried about it because because of the fact that there's the injury history and because sure. of the question marks about how that group has been utilized. The, the injury history That's does thing. worry me a little bit yeah. because, you know, can they be successful without Kevin Austin? Yes, they can be. Mm-hmm. But are they better with Kevin Austin at full sure. strength? Absolutely. Same with Braden Lindsay. Right. Same yeah, with good Braden point. Lindsay. Yeah. Good point. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, and I didn't even mention Jay Brunell. Jay Brunell's a good football player. You know, sure. Jay Thomas is a good football player. Notre Dame's got about nine or ten receivers that are flat out good football players. And I believe, I mean, I'm trying to think. Xavier Watts and Jay Brunell are the only players that I believe were considered three star recruits. If you're someone obsessed with recruiting rankings, all of yeah. those other kids were four star recruits. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're That's now talent. juniors and seniors for the most part. Lorenzo Styles was a top hundred recruit. Deion Colsey was a top one hundred recruit. I mean, what other team in the country lands a top 100 receiver and says, well, see you in a couple years, you yeah. know? I mean, that it just doesn't happen. So that that's the big key for me is if they can do a better job of developing. To Vince, to your point, I am cautiously optimistic about the changes that Coach Reese is making. Sure. I, I'm hopeful that that there's a come-to-Jesus moment with Coach Alexander and and that he kind of gets out of his own way and starts saying, you know what? I got a job to do. I'm good at this, and I'm going to go do it, and I don't care what else happens. Uh, because then I think he'll be successful. Because, like I said, there was a reason why I was excited that Dell Alexander got hired at Notre Dame. And and hopefully, that, again, if all that stuff kind of gets resolved, then I'm ex- I'm not concerned about this receiving core. I'm excited about it. Yeah, and too. I'm excited about it in a way that even if they have an injury or two, I'm still thinking there's there's enough talent there to be really effective. I mean, 
that's why I'm, I'm I'm hoping that by the end of the year we're having a different conversation. I, sure. I really am because there is way too much talent for this to not be a really really dynamic group of players. Do they have Alabama's talent? No, they don't have four first round draft picks in their receiving core. But trust me, there's a there's a lot of talent there, depth of talent. And again, we haven't even talked about the fact that they can use Michael Mayer in the pass game, yeah, all exactly. those tight ends in the pass game, Coward Williams in the pass game, Chris Tyree in the pass game. So Notre Dame will have a plethora of weapons today. And I watched Three Amigos recently, so I just needed to fit in the word plethora. And I know what the word plethora means. I hope so. <laughs> all right. So from the movie. <laughs> I haven't seen that one in a long time, actually. Yeah. But uh, very, very solid movie. All right, Tony is leading us off here uh, from the YouTube side of things. He says, question, in your mind, what is the most unforgivable loss of the Brian Kelly era? Mine is Michigan 2019. ND was the better team than Michigan, and they didn't even get off the bus. Totally embarrassing. He's got a follow-up. Also, that loss ultimately kept uh, Notre Dame out of the playoff as well. And like the next – three comments are basically all concerning this. So yeah. uh, Tony you know, got us started off with some Tony got us started today. off. And I, I'll, I'll put everybody's up there just so we kind of have a conversation starter. Uh, but AJ says, Tony, you stole my question. I had the same one prepared. I was going to ask what are BK's top three worst losses since he's been at Notre Dame. 2019 Michigan is the worst in my opinion as well. And then continuing on from Tony's and my question, what are the three best or biggest wins in your opinion? Since he's been at Notre Dame, I would say Oklahoma 2012, Clemson 2020, and USC 2017. Boom. Okay. So with all of that, Brian, I will let you shoot first, but I kind of agree where these guys are going coming from. Yeah, I, I'm going to go with Miami, though, still. I, look, to me, the 2019 team was not a playoff team, in, in my opinion. I think they might have made the playoff in 2019, but I don't know the if same they, old story. They, that was just there. not that was yeah. not a great team. And and you say, well, they were playing really good down the stretch against bad teams. That was a that was one of the more flawed Brian Kelly teams. And when I mean flawed, I mean flawed relative to their ability to compete for national championship. It was still a really good football team, and they went eleven and two. Right? You don't go eleven and two sure. if you're not really good. Again, my standard is: was that a team capable of competing for a national championship? I don't think that it was. I think that they had depth issues at running back. I think the offensive line was playing way too soft that year. They had a ton of injuries down the stretch. You lost Tommy Kramer. You lost Robert Haynes. You lost Javon McKinley. They that team was that team that was actually that was a horrible coaching job in that Michigan game. But but to 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 kind of piece all those things together after that loss. And then to, to you know you you just played flat and uninspired against Virginia Tech, but then Ian Book makes who who played awful the first three quarters makes some huge plays down the stretch. You and I have had many conversations that about that game. Yeah, but but it, this is one of the things I loved about Ian Book is that he could play like garbage for three quarters, but if he had a shot to win it in the fourth quarter, he was gonna he wasn't gonna let those mistakes bother him. Sure, he was gonna step up and make a play. He did it against LSU in 2017 too. People forget he had a huge interception in the yep. third quarter of that game. That cost Notre Dame points, but he ba bounced back, and when they needed him to make plays in the end, he made them. And I think that sprung board them over, and they recovered well from that loss. Past Notre Dame teams, pre-2017 Notre Dame teams, that loss to Michigan would have set off a string of another two or three losses. Sure. I, that's what I believe. And, and I think to be able to cobble all of that together after that embarrassing, horrible loss and go out there and win and and – and and also not only win, but win with you lost Tommy Kramer against Michigan. You lost Robert Hainsey the next week against Virginia Tech early. 
you're 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 starting Josh Lug and Trevor Rulin on the right side of your offensive line, which wasn't playing well to begin with, and you still went out there and not only won but won convincingly. I thought that they bounced back, but that team was just not a playoff team. That team was not as good as the 2020 team. It was not even close to as good as the 2018 or even the 2017 team. I still believe that that 2017 team could is arguably the best, the second best of Brian Kelly's tenure from a talent standpoint. I still think 2015 was the best. I think 2017 was the second best team. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, Notre Dame having big wins. When you look at Ohio State and, and Alabama and Clemson, they don't just beat good teams. They smash teams. That was the one year that Notre Dame wasn't just beating ranked teams. They were destroying ranked teams. I mean, they blew out Michigan State, who was a 10-win top 15 team that year. They beat them 38-18, to 18, and it wasn't that close on the road. They beat an 11-win USC team, 49-14. to 14. They beat a 9-win NC State team that had seven front seven players get drafted, 35-14. to 14. That team was giving up like under 100 yards rushing per game. Notre Dame went for over 300. I still believe that that was Notre Dame's best shot of the post-2016 era to compete for a title. I felt that. But then you had the Miami debacle where they just didn't show up. They, you know, you you have Wimbush miss that post route to Equinemy St. Brown. I still contend that if he hits that ball, they whoop Miami. They're in the playoff because they would have beat Stanford on the road because that team had just lost its confidence by the time they got to Stanford. I think that team, and you look at 2017, two Vince, that was a very flawed year for a lot of teams. That was a very flawed year for Alabama. That was not a great Alabama team. That was an Alabama team that put a lot of they won with some smoke and mirrors, and that was a great coaching job by Nick Saban. If you remember that team, that was the year <clears throat> that they uh, they had to bench Jalen Hurts in the in the uh, in the championship game and, and beat that Georgia team in overtime. You know that that was a very beatable, very beatable Alabama team that lost to Auburn 26-14 in the last game of the regular season. And and I would have taken that Notre Dame offensive line against that Alabama defensive line. Again, assuming that Notre Dame was playing with the same confidence that it had pre-Miami. And that's what I'm saying. You look at Notre Dame again from Michigan State up to Wake through Wake Forest. That was the best stretch of football we've seen from Notre Dame since 1993, in my opinion. I mean, they weren't just, like I said, they weren't just winning events. They were dominant. And then to just have it all come crashing down against Miami, where now people don't even really talk about how do- – <clears throat> Notre Dame in November was averaging over 40 points a game through nine games. We talk about being able to score. They were they rushed for over 300 yards in like seven of their first eight games. It was insane how dominant that team was. And then against Miami, it just sh- all came crashing down. That, to me, was by far Notre Dame's worst loss because of the embarrassing nature of it. Yeah. You can't use the rain and the elements as an excuse in that game like you can Michigan. And that team, in my opinion, was much better than the 2019 team. So that that would be my mind for the biggest loss and the biggest missed opportunity, yeah. in my opinion, yeah. other than the 2015 season. <laughs> biggest wins, you know, I think I think those three are are tough to tough to argue with. Yeah, I agree. Or I'm not gonna I actually think Stanford was the better team that year than Oklahoma in 2012. I think Oklahoma was a you know perceived as a tougher loss, a tougher win, a bigger win because at the time Stanford wasn't ranked super high when Notre Dame beat them. And that Stanford uh, game was in the rain and the right. was that last but, second defensive stand, yep. wasn't it? Yep. And 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 I don't believe Stanford was ranked. I, Stanford ended into that season with like twelve wins, and I think they finished like seventh. I'm actually looking it up now. 
But Stanford wasn't considered a highly ranked team at that time, and, and they ended up becoming much higher ranked later in the year. That, to me, was the best team Notre Dame beat that year. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Stanford was ranked 17th at the time. Notre Dame beat them. Stanford fell to 4-2. and two. Stanford didn't lose another game the rest of the year, I don't believe. So that was a really good Stanford team. I didn't think that Oklahoma team was, was as good as their ranking indicated. Yeah, they the rest of the year, they uh, Stanford did not lose another game the rest of the year, including they beat number two Oregon on the road that season in 2012. So, because remember, that was part of that late season stretch where Kansas State got beat and then Oregon got beat and then that vaulted Alabama back into the top two. Uh, whereas if Oregon and Kansas State wouldn't have lost, Notre Dame would have played one of those two teams in the in the postseason. So uh, I still think Stanford 2012 was the big win. And the other part of the two, Vince, is I don't think they beat Oklahoma if they don't beat Stanford. If you go back and watch Notre Dame after that Stanford win, let's remember something about Stanford back then. There was not a player on the field that day that had played in a game where they beat Stanford. Not one. Because they hadn't beat Stanford since 2008. No, excuse me, 2007. They hadn't beat Stanford since 2007, and so um, I, you know you look at that you look at that team, and that was the giant, that was the dragon, right? Yeah, that was right. The team that that no that just they didn't know how to beat, and that Stanford team was coming off some really impressive seasons. I think the year before they had finished in the top five, 2010 they finished in the top five. They had remember the year before that 2012 season they lost that epic game against um, Oklahoma State, I think in the Fiesta Bowl against a really good Oklahoma State team that I thought should have played Bama or LSU for the national title that season, if you remember that. But, you know, the, to me, that was that was the team to me that um, – no, 2008 was the last time they had beaten Stanford. So the guys that were fifth-year seniors in 2012 were true freshmen in 2008 the last time Notre Dame had beat them. So and none of them played like Capra Lewis Moore. None of those guys played in that Stanford game. So once they slayed that dragon, it was kind of like, okay – we beat Stanford, we can beat anybody. And we beat Stanford at their game. That was yeah. the other thing. Because remember the time, Stanford was yep. a power, physical, oh, yeah. running football team. Multiple tackles yes. in, you know. And Notre yeah. Dame beat them at their own game. And to me, that it, that to me was the thing that sprung board that team. If Notre Dame would have lost to Stanford, I think they'd have lost at least two more games that year. That was that game that said, you know what, we can beat anybody. And, and so I think that was, to me, that was in there, the biggest three. I think Clemson, obviously, this year was huge. And then USC in 2017. And not just because USC was really good that year, because you could argue that 2013 Michigan State, if we're just looking at how good the team was at the end of the year, 2013 Notre Dame beat a Michigan State team that went 13-1. and one, And the only team to beat them was Notre Dame. And, you know, obviously they finished the third that year. But at the time Notre Dame beat them, they were unranked. Yeah. You know, but not only that, but the the manner in which they beat USC, Vince, to me, was part of that too. Like it's not that they just beat USC. Oh, they beat they um, they, they took their embarrassed USC. Yes. It was yeah, yes. it was in the trenches. And that was a soul. good USC football team. You know, a really good USC football team. And Notre Dame just curb stomped. I mean, from was, start to finish. Yeah, oh, from from the opening because uh, it wasn't like their first possession. Didn't they? I think it was the first drop back. Didn't Notre Dame cause a fumble? It was like a sack fumble. Yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah. It was um, Notre Dame got the ball first, punted, 
Okay. USC gets the ball, and I believe it's the first or second play. They yeah. have this blitz, and they just overwhelm USC. They strip the ball out. Tavon Coney recovers it. And yes. then Notre Dame. That's you know, what it was. It was like a strip sack, yeah. and it was like game over. I, yeah. it, I mean, and that was the story of the game because the Notre Dame defensive line just abused USC. The, I mean, we talk a lot about what Quentin Nelson did to Rasheem Green, and he got that no moss moment. You know, he's kind of turned his back on him, just let Quentin Nelson drive him off the line. And uh, but but the Notre Dame defensive line just destroyed, destroyed yeah. the USC offensive line that game. And that was sort of to me the coming out party for Mike Elko. Because it's like, okay, they hadn't really, you know, they they hadn't really beat any name opponents up to that point in time. You know, they hadn't really um, you know, there, there was there that they were playing good, but you know, being beating Michigan State, unfortunately, no matter how good Michigan State is, is not really a game that's going to be like, oh wow, you've arrived on a national scale, right. you know, right, right. And they played good football, you know, they played good against Miami defensively. They didn't lose that game because of the defense. You had beat Boston College, who wasn't that good. They beat Temple, Miami of Ohio, North Carolina. North Carolina stunk that year, and then you do what they did to to to, to USC, and then the next week you kind of. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. To embarrass NC State and you return a pick six, the defense was just playing great. That was kind of like that, okay, the Brian Van Gorder era is officially dead. Right. And uh, you know, it was, and to me, that was the beginning of Notre Dame playing great defensive football, which they've really carried into the present, the present time. Because even the Miami game, I didn't think the defense played terrible. The defense actually held in there for a while. The defense yeah. only reason the game was close for a while. Gave up like what two pick sixes and just short fields and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was um, it was horrible. That was yeah, that was. But that USC game was was impressive. Uh, one, it was USC. Two, it was an eleven one team. And three, it was just a dismantling. Mm-hmm. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcast. All right, so a lot of people chimed in. You know, Jeffrey says the Michigan game took 10 years off my life. Uh, John, the Michigan loss is horrible. The Miami game ruined the season two. Thanks for bringing up the Miami game. I had erased it from memory. The horror, the horror. Um, 
Let's see here. Getting through. We've got some trivia in there for TV, which is awesome. I love I love this group. Um, okay, here we go. DJ, if you could choose one, what position group can Notre Dame least afford a fall camp injury? I'm going to say safety. And I read this question before, and I was going through my head trying to come up with a different answer just to be different. And I can't logically put together an argument. Uh, now you could say maybe one of the offensive linemen because of experience and, and things of that nature. But the depth at the safety position right now is so thin that I, it's got to be safety. If, some, if, if Houston Griffith or, God forbid, Kyle Hamilton go down, I, I think I have to agree. I think that would be the, the biggest uh, hurdle to overcome for this team. Yeah, I, I I got. I mean, I've got nothing else to add. That that would be the position where it'd be the most to me the most devastating. Yeah, absolutely. And and somebody said uh, center. Uh, trying to find that one that center might be. No, nah, because uh, I think then you could just move Jarrett Patterson back to center. A good point. Yeah. Yep. 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 Very good call. I mean, if we're being honest, Notre Dame's best center this year is Jarrett Patterson. You, you're not moving him necessarily because Zeke Carell is better than is. him at center. You're moving him because Zeke Carell is one of your five best linemen, and Zeke Carell can play center, and Jarrett Patterson could literally play all five positions. Exactly. But I, I mean, yep. I, th- I think Jarrett Patterson still right now their best center. So, and, and you know, and then if you had to move him, you could either slide Rocco Spindler into the starting lineup if he's not starting. If he is starting, you could then move Andrew Christoffer or Quinn Carroll. So I, I, I think they're in better position to handle an interior loss than they are a tackle loss, in my opinion. I think if they lose somebody at tackle, there's a little bit of a bigger concern right now. But you know, I think for me, Vince, if we're if we're if we're past safety, you know, I think the biggest concern is at running back, in my opinion. If you lose one of the top two running backs, I think that there's a big drop off because Sebo's a good football player, but you're not using Sebo the same way you do those other guys. Sebo right. is a runner. That do you think it. that they would just play more of whoever was left between Chris sure. Tyree and, and Kyron Williams? Well, yeah, but still that, but that takes away bit. from what you're able to do. And then you ask the sure. question is, when does that injury happen? If the injury happens yeah. early in the year, then, then yeah. that guy's going to wear down. But, but part of the excitement that you and I have, and I think a lot of people have about the running back position, is not just that those guys are, are both very talented, but it's the fact that they're very talented in the manner in which you're going to use them together. Sure. And then you lose that, it takes away a weapon. And now what, you know, one of the things we talked about, right? Like, well, you know, if you lose a receiver, you're still okay. Cause you got the tight ends, you got the running backs. Well, what if you lose a running back, you right. know, then you lose a receiver. I think that could have a greater impact on other positions as well. Makes sense to me. Uh, DJ, remember to hit that like button always helps these guys out. And yes, we would appreciate that. Like subscribe, uh, if you're listening on the podcast, make sure you're subscribed there too, so you get all the uh, updated info. Uh, let's see here. Now, you know the interesting one, Vince. While you're looking too, thank about you. The I appreciate that. Is, uh, Michael Mayer is an interesting one because you look and say, well, if you lose Michael Mayer tight end, you still have very very good tight ends, and that's very true. But but with all due respect to the other tight ends, who I think are good football players, Michael Mayer is arguably the best tight end in the country. And I think anytime you lose a guy that's that good, even though there's other guys, unless you're replacing are, him with someone yeah. that good, I think yeah. that that that's is a point. Me, uh, could would be a would be a tough one. That's a good point. Notre Dame twenty one sixty four. Okay, I got to ask if we had adopted the new offensive philosophy that we are implementing today after we lost the national championship game in twenty twelve. Do you think we win it all in eighteen or twenty? It's a good hypothetical. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's 
I would say that the offense has a better chance to compete uh, if if they had adjusted the offensive yeah. philosophy earlier. Uh, whether they win or not is I maybe. still think that Clemson game would have been a tough a tough win for yeah. them. Yeah. I think they could have beat Clemson, but I, I I'm not going to say definitively. Yes, they definitely beat Clemson in 2018. That was a really good Clemson team, and and 2020 I don't I don't think so because I look the whole thing about playing Bama this year is if Notre Dame had the correct offensive philosophy. And again, if we're just talking with the personnel they had, I still don't think they beat Bama. Your nice contention was that it's going to be a competitive game, and then maybe if you can catch a break or two, you can win the game. But it wasn't a game where I thought Notre Dame was going to win, per se, unless Bama made a bunch of mistakes. It was a game that I thought that they should have been competitive in. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, to me, the only the only question that I would have is, you know, there there were other things that happened that that beyond just the offensive system that, to me, kept this team from winning that I don't think the change in offensive philosophy would have negated, mainly being two hires, in my opinion. Number one, Brian McGorder's defensive coordinator. Number two, Mike Sanford is the offensive co- co-offensive coordinator and quarterback's coach. I think I think Mike Sanford basically did, did such a bad job coaching Brandon Wimbush that by the time Chip Long and Tommy Reese took over, Brandon Wimbush was damaged goods mechanically. And, uh, you know, I, I don't I think he was beyond fixing at that point in time. So, you know, I, I look at it and say those two hires to me would have would have still been damaging. Now, sure. if you were to tell me that they would not have made the Mike Sanford hire and still made the offensive philosophy change and we would have seen a Brandon Wimbush in 2017 that was much closer to the Brandon Wimbush we saw in high school. And I've had coaches that, that, that weren't part of recruiting Brandon Wimbush tell me that you know, they didn't recognize him. When they watched film and then came to Notre Dame and saw him throw, they're like, who the heck is that kid? He, he had been so jacked up by Mike Sanford. And, and so I think that's something that if, if you didn't make that hire and then you're running that offensive philosophy, a more of an open attack, and you have Brandon Wimbush with what he can do running the ball in, in a more in a, in a Brandon Wimbush looking like he did that made him a top 50 player in the country coming out of high school. That 2017 team might have been special. And then Brandon Wimbush is still your quarterback in 2018. Right. And he's confident. So then maybe you'd have had a shot to beat Clemson, but not the way that Brandon Wimbush was playing. And and so that's why I would say no to that question. But I think they would have been more competitive. And then that asks the question of if you're more competitive in those games, do you then get some better recruits that allow you to be more competitive in 2020? But it's just such a – you know, this dominoes that have if, to happen. Yeah. It's just hard to really dive into that and really say it. Let me ask you a coaching question because mm-hmm. I know you've coached quarterbacks before. Um, and it, let's say you get a guy like Brandon Wimbush who, you know, has positioned himself or, or Phil Dracovic or you, insert name here, right, who's had a, a storied high school career, um, maybe doesn't have the classic throwing style, but he's obviously been successful in high school. It made him a high recruit. It made him want you in your, you know, in your room. Do you tinker with the throwing style or you just let him be him and teach him the philosophy of the game, how to read defenses, you know, things of that nature? What kind of coaching strategy do you take on that? The only time I alter a player's throwing motion is if it creates problems. You know, I've talked about 2023 recruits Ricky Collins. You know, he's got a a motion that I would like to speed up. He's got that long Trevor Lawrence, like drop the ball down here thing, which, I mean, it is what it is. If you're going to have that, there's other things you need to do to to compensate. 
I don't want to change it, but I'd like to speed it up a little bit, you know, something like that. Because Trevor Lawrence does that, but he's really fast getting through the throwing zone. I'm a big believer that unless the throwing motion creates problems, so if it creates inconsistency, inaccuracy, problems like that, then you then you tinker with it. Uh, I, otherwise, I don't mess with it. I'm a big believer that you mess with a quarterback's feet and you mess with his mind. That's what you focus on. You know, when Phil Dracovic, there was nothing wrong with his high school throwing motion. With Phil, it was, you know, you needed to teach him to maybe throw in, a little, in rhythm a little bit more effectively. You know, he was so good outside the pocket and off platform. We saw that at BC this past year. We saw that Brandon Wimbush, you know, to where where with Brandon, it was kind of like his footwork would get him in trouble. His his ability to process reads would get him into trouble. Phil has to learn to, even as good as he was at BC this year, you know, he was he was making plays off God-given ability. There's still a lot he has to improve upon when it comes to reading defenses, processing information, getting the ball out on better with better timing, things like that. Those are the things that I focus on as a coach. I'm not a big fan of tinkering with throwing motions. You know, Steve Spurrier used to do that. You know, every quarterback had to throw the exact same way. And, you know, that worked when he had quarterbacks that that naturally fit, Danny Warfel. But I just – I don't believe you can be successful with that. I think you have to let a kid be kind of who he is. And because you now you're spending a whole lot of time trying to change his muscle memory, and I just don't think that's necessary. I don't think there's one way to throw a football mechanically with your yeah. arm. I think the the key, however, is the feet have to be where where. I don't say that there's not one way to do it, but that's where most quarterbacks, in my opinion, get in trouble is their feet, and then their ability to process information, the anticipation, the timing of when to throw and where to throw. Work on those things, and the other part will be fine. Because if you go back and watch Brandon Wimbush. A lot of his problems, he had he had just no confidence in his throwing motion by twenty, by even by twenty seventeen when he was a starter, he had no confidence in his throwing motion. And then you go back and watch him as a junior and senior in high school, and he didn't have those problems. And his mechanics had changed, but a big part of his mechanical problems was his footwork were a mess. And I, Vince, you and I used to watch the drills that Mike Sanford did with them in practice. You're like, what in the heck are they doing? That has nothing to do with football. That's like something he saw at some coaches clinic and was like, oh, that's cool. Let's try that. And there's no application to football. And that was one of the many problems that I had with, with that situation. But no, I, that, does that answer your question, Vince? Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, I, I'm I just curious. The head. Yeah. Uh, you basically said exactly what I would do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's – it's like, you know, tinkering with a guy's swing, you know, because that hits home with me right now. Mm-hmm. You know, guys can have a funky swing, but if it gets through the zone the right way – Okay. I mean, there's a lot of different guys in the Hall of Fame who have really good batting averages, and none of them have the same swing. So right. it's it's similar to that, in my opinion. Same but, with pitching. I mean, yeah. the guys right. pitch differently. You have to find exactly. what, especially with your arm, right? You have to find what's what's most comfortable for that player's body and is most the most repeatable thing, and allows him to be the most effective and accurate. And and yep. I just think too many people get obsessed with yes the throwing motion and, and especially people that don't know quarterbacks. And now there's all these thousands of quarterback oh, coaches yeah. across the country. And it's like, well, you know, why are they all tinkering with kids throwing motions? Cause what, what are you going to do if, if a kid comes to me and says, Hey, there's nothing wrong with your throwing motion. Maybe we can do some footwork stuff. He's not going to then pay you hundreds of dollars and, you know, thousands of dollars to coach him up. You have to say, well, you know, I mess with this and I think with this. And that's what I say. No, that's just, that's nuts. I mean, you know, I just, and that's the thing, like Tyler Buckner, like, were they just bored? Is that why they started to mess with his throwing motion? Somebody convinced him that there was an issue there that didn't really exist because right. they needed the money. They right. needed him to pay him. I don't know what the reason is, but I still don't understand why he changed his motion. I feel the same way about Phil Dracovic. I feel the same way 
about Brandon Wimbush. I mean, it's just over and over and over again. And, um, you know, that's that's why I say you, you know, keep the throwing motion as long as it gets the job done. I don't care about the right. throwing motion. Work on the feet, work on the core, work on the mind. Yep. Could not agree more. All right. John has a bet with his friend. He goes, buddy and a buddy and I have made the same bet over the last 10 to 15 years. What will be the first offensive play of the season? Now, I'm assuming he means run or pass. Like, you know, what is it? Not specifically, you know, is it going to be a flood route? Or is it, you well, know, I think he means specifically. Really? Yeah. I mean, what, like zone read? Like, or, yeah. You know. I mean, otherwise, it's like you got a 50-50 shot of getting it right. Okay. I mean, that's kind of, you know. I mean, what, what do you think the first play is going to be? I think Jack Cohn's going to bang a deep post. That's what I okay. think. Bring it on, baby. That's Write what it I, down. Vince D'Addario. That's, that's what I would say. Either a deep post or a deep corner route. I mean, let's open this thing up. Uh, you know, play action. Here we go. That's that's what I would do. I think they're going to run an outside zone with an RPO attached. Okay. So I'm not saying – I'm not saying, butter, baby. Yeah, I'm not saying run or pass. I'm saying they're going to run outside zone with an RPO attached. Now that that could be it could be a handoff, it could be a pull and throw. Yeah. And, you know, it just depends yeah. on what Florida State's going to do. But I'm going with outside zone with an RPO attached, and maybe okay. that's just wishful thinking on my part. But uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Good that's, point. That's what, and I think they're going to run it right at Blake Fisher, depending on you know, assuming obviously you got to get the the where the ball is on the hash. But but I I just think they're going to come out and try to make a statement on on snap one. All right. I, I would like your way of it. I would like your pick better. <laughs> well, like just we'll come see. out and have Cone bang just, a post route on snap one. That's just me. Uh, D Rock Irish question Is there a deadline for the upcoming season for an athlete to submit his name into the transfer portal? I assume he means and still be able to play that season. I believe it's first day of the semester. Once the semester starts. Right. That makes that is sense. When. Once I believe starts. I could be wrong on this, but I, I believe that if you transfer in fall camp, especially now that the rule is that there's no sit out period, that as long as the semester hasn't started at the school you're at or the school you're transferring to, you know, there there's no. Well, thank goodness there's, there's no a rule. So there's no like, yeah. you know, trade deadline basically right. in the middle. of the season. You know, you but, just- but honestly, what I'm curious about Vince is, is, you know, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know how this rule is going to like. If a kid leaves in the fifth game of the year and wants to transfer somewhere, like, you know, there's no sit out rule. I, I you know, That's I really don't, you, I don't know how these are going to mid season, but I, I don't think that you're going to be able to. I still think you'd have to, not. you'd have to sit out that season. You're, can you imagine? Can you imagine if there was like mid season and like some kid is just having a studly year, like a Mac school or something, and yeah. you know, Alabama comes calling, like, hey, you're the missing link between us and a national yeah. title. Well, there's you know, a lot of people in the media that would say, well, it's his right. It's his freedom. Oh my Stupid. God. Anyway, let that one go. All right, mm-hmm. Jay. Tom Loy reported uh, Ohio State is surging for Carnell Tate. Staff better hit this visit out of the park whenever he comes in June. I would hate to lose another top wide receiver. Notre Dame should have landed from the Chicago area. Yeah, that would be bad, but I, I think we need to pump the brakes on on reports of who is or isn't surging, you know, I don't want to. I mean, I, uh, Tom's my guy. I, I don't want to get into that. And I'm not. I don't know what Tom did or didn't say or how he said it. But you know, these kids haven't even taken visits yet. Let's just. Right. Let's and they're just, going to. And I think a lot of these kids, know. now that they know that there's a visit coming, right? Um, they're going to be taking them. And yeah. there's a lot of things schools can do on those visits to, you yeah. know, influence. I mean, there's just there's just not a lot to talk about right now. So sure, you know, 
Yeah. yeah. Got to get something going. I, got, I hear you. Yeah. All right. Uh, BRBR. I, okay. Lots yep. of letters there. Uh, in an era of turnover chains and similar stuff, the use of pump fakes uh, more valuable than ever. Glory-seeking corners are jumping routes like slants more than ever. Need more sluggos with a pump fake. Um, those are all well and good if you've got an offensive line that can hold off the pass rush. Uh, I would say that uh, because that a, a sluggo with a pump fake takes time. And some of these uh, offensive lines out there don't have time mm-hmm. to make that happen, I would yeah. say. Are, I, I would, are, I would you noticing, are you noticing when you watch film that, that – glory-seeking corners are, are jumping slant routes and things more often? Is that like yeah, a thing I mean, you're noticing? It's, well, it depends on the league. I mean, there's okay. leagues where – I mean, you see that – that's part of the reason that Oklahoma gets guys wide open so much is because they run these, like, double moves. They run, like – they sure. don't – now, sluggos, for those who don't know it, that's a slant, slant and go. go. So you fake a slant and go. But they run double moves. They'll run, like, options, you know, like a stick and go, nod and go, you know, like like a six-yard option, and then the guy bites, and then you beat him, even right. deeper options, and you beat him. They won real wheel routes, uh, you know, snapping fades and those. I mean, they sure. run all types of double moves, and I think those things are effective. And I th- especially nowadays, Vince, as more and more people are are um, uh, playing more man coverage, you're seeing even more of it. You know, because guys are trying to make plays in the ball. So yeah, I, I, I don't know if. You know, I don't know if it's necessarily more than in the past. I think it's just when you play man, that's just the nature of playing man. Uh, teams that play a lot of cover two get real aggressive with their corners too. If you have an aggressive, if you're aggressive with your corners, you're not going to see a lot of guys playing cover four, jumping routes, getting beat with sluggos. You know what I mean? Just right. because it's the nature of the coverage is like if you run a slant route, you're not my guy anyway, so I'm not going to worry about it. So, but but in this era of a lot more cover two, a lot more in cover two, meaning that's part of a split field coverage. You know, they may be four on one side, two on the other. In, a lot, in this era of a lot more man, you're seeing guys jump, and also because it is an era where there's so much quick game and screens and things like that. That, yeah, I do think there's a lot of that, and I think that's something that, and that's why I've advocated in the past, Vince. Of that's what I want to see more, like post snap switching by Notre Dame, just doing more things to create miscommunications or mistakes by the defense. I think those things are effective tools in regards to that. All right. Shane, Tom Loy has a crystal ball in for 23 tight end Mac Markway. What are your thoughts on him and looks to have an impressive offer list already? I wouldn't take him. Look, Mac Markway is a good football player. He's from St. Louis. He goes to DeSmet. Uh, he, to my problem with him is he is a, he's a good football player. I don't think he's better than what you have. I think that he is a, a throwback tight end. He's kind of a Brock Wright type of high school recruit, which again, that's really good. But to me, I don't think that's the ideal tight end to, to thrive at Notre Dame. When you talk about the fact that you signed two in 2021 and you signed two in 2020 and you signed two in 2019, the tight end they need to bring needs to be an elite player. I like J- Jackson Howard a lot better than Mac Markway. I like Deuce Robinson a lot better than Mac Markway. Um, I, you know, and again, you, you, we have to understand what crystal balls are about. They're not always predictions of what will happen. 
it's sort of a, this is the trend that I see sometimes. Sometimes it's a prediction, but when a guy is a long way away from committing, it's more about trying to get your pick in early yeah. of where you're predicting because the lo- the earlier you get your pick, and this isn't a shot at Tom at all. Tom's my dude. Like, I like Tom. Vince, you know that. Oh, yeah. This is more of just this. He's just, he's working within a framework created by the company he works for. Sure. You get more points by getting a pick in early. So if you get a pick in early and Notre Dame continues trending with him over the next year and, and it, your prediction comes right, you get huge points because you got that thing in early. Now, if he vote goes, if the kid goes and visits Ohio State and Ohio State seems to be trending, then you can change your pick. You know, so I, we, we just, if you could go back and track crystal balls, and this is just true in general, you're going to see guys get multiple crystal ball predictions to sure. different schools, the same analyst. Sure. Because it's, it's, it's as much as a trending as it is a prediction. It's a prediction when you know the kid's going to commit. Right. So if if so and so is going to visit commit after his visit, and then twenty five crystal balls go in for that kid to go to a school, then you know the word has gotten out, and <laughs> that's where he's going to go. Right. Well, it's true. Like guys, I know you. Like I know BYU were making predictions about a Notre Dame kid. Like why? But uh, that's just kind of how that works, and that's one of the issues I have with. It. And it's not an issue with the the dudes doing it. They're doing what they're ta- told to do by the people sure. that by the company so i wouldn't get too much into that right now but that would disappoint me if they took mac markway and again he's a good football player but that's just not the kind of tight end that a thrives in college and it's not the kind end kind of tight end that Notre name should be getting and they should not be taking a guy like that this early i hope we don't have right. another jack nickel situation although mac markway is a better football player than jack nickel but i'm putting all my chips in the table for jackson howard and deuce robinson right now at this point in time all right, Liam actually has a really good question because I think this is a uh, something that a lot of people wonder. What's the difference between an analyst and an assistant coach? And more importantly, what is their restriction on uh, interaction with players during the offseason? Can they, can they help uh, drill in route running and O-line techniques? Analysts are not allowed to do on-field work. Correct. Yep. That's basically the, the deal. And I, and, and- uh, yep. How you use analysts is going to vary, and it, and teams that have a lot more analysts will use analysts in different ways. Some people use analysts to do self-scouting. I would have an analyst that did self-scouting. Absolutely. I would have an analyst that did opponents, future opponent scouting. Uh, in today's era of the transfer portal, I would hire four or five assistants that are responsible, uh, analysts that are responsible for basically scouting different parts of the country, almost like an NFL player development type of system. Yep. Because when when a thousand kids hit the transfer portal, I need to know who I'm talking to to find out if this is a sure. kid that we should go after. And so I, I think that Notre Dame's analyst situation needs to be expanded, and they have expanded it uh, quite quite a bit. I prefer hiring veteran coaches in those jobs, like a Kerry Cooks. I think hiring Kerry Cooks as an analyst, if they can continue to keep him there, is a phenomenal move by Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you need analysts that are very experienced at breaking down film, studying opponents, figuring out tendencies, and those type of things. So that way, when when I finish my, you know, if I'm the offensive coordinator, Tommy, you know, if I'm Tommy Reese, and I finish our gra- Sunday grades of the game we just played. And we're getting ready to start breaking down the next opponent. I want this. I want printouts. I want tendencies. I want third down charts. I want first down charts. I want red zone charts. I want short yardage goal sure. line charts. I want all that stuff done. Now I'm still going to watch the film and study it, of course. But I want you to do a lot of the you got a road analytical map. work yeah, going right. into it. You know, hey, yep. this is their five best players. Now I may disagree with that. I may watch the film and say, you know what, I'm more worried about that guy. But we've got so much of that foundation done. 
Whereas Vince, you you know, in high school when I was coaching Division three, we couldn't really start that stuff till Sunday. So I mean, right. all day Sunday is kind of getting caught up on the upcoming opponent. Yep. And whereas now it's like, okay, here it is. Now we're now we're ready to rock and roll. Sure. And I'd have to do that stuff. We didn't have GAs and analysts no. and stuff like that. So I mean, I, I think that's what analysts do now. Are there schools that use analysts to coach when there aren't media around or compliance people around? I'm sure. But uh, off the field, they're allowed to have interactions, I under, my, is my understanding. They're not, well, like, barred from being around the players. They just can't give on-field right. instruction during right. practices. I, I will say this. When Jeff Quinn was an analyst uh, at Notre Dame, because that's what he was doing before he became the offensive line coach, um, I was on sidelines <clears throat> participating in one of my other jobs, and he and I had, like, a 20-minute conversation just chatting, but it was during practice. Like, mm-hmm. he, is, he was out there. Um, you know, with the guys, he was talking to them when they would come over, you know, and get a drink or whatever, mm-hmm. but he wasn't on the field. Coaching. And he can't, he wasn't, he can't instruct them. Right. Exactly. He was and just saying, Hey, get water over there is not instructing. Play. Exactly. He was shooting the bull, you know, Hey, nice play. Well, you know, whatever it was just, you know, but he was out there and, mm-hmm. and he was a part of the group. Um, but he was on the sidelines, you know, with me. Right. Um, and just kind of doing his thing. So he's a really, that, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a good dude. I mean, he, he's a fun guy to talk ball with. Jeff's Jeff's coach. Quinn's an interesting cat, he, but he, he's a good, I dude. had a great conversation. Yeah, he's a good with dude. I thought he was awesome. Yeah. He I walked up to, to me one time. I was in the, I was in the, the Goog kind of waiting on a press conference was over. Maybe we we're waiting on one, but I'd gotten there early and I'm doing some evaluation stuff and some breakdown stuff. And he comes over and I didn't realize he was standing over my shoulder for like a couple <laughs> minutes watching what I was doing. And so he's like, "What you doing?" And he's just, I mean, he's just a real, a real good guy. Yes. You know what I mean? Like yes. he's, he's a good dude. Like he's a yes. dude you'd like to go to the to, to Texas Roadhouse with, or something. Yes. Like that. Just sit in the back corner, and just like take a notepad, and just you're just talking ball and drawing up plays, and how yeah. would you block this, and you know, and sharing stories about you know the the because he coached D two back in the nineties and two thousands, right? So he understands sure. what life is like at those schools where you get no financial support. You've got like five full time assistants and then a bunch of volunteers you know your quarterback's coach yeah. teaches at the local high school or as yeah. the mailman or something like that it's a whole <laughs> animal at that it's level true. you can have some fun war stories with him yeah no doubt about it i i really enjoyed my conversation with him so mm-hmm. i just you know that was just an example of what kind of analysts are doing at practice they're just kind of out there uh some of them some of them don't go out there but anyway uh ryan uh under under marcus freeman at cincinnati they had 49 interceptions since 2017 when he took over 16 total interceptions being the highest in back-to-back years. Uh, with overall better talent at Notre Dame, can we finally get a season with 10-plus picks? Um, They've had seasons. They've had a lot of seasons. Are you talking about just from the secondary? Um, Because uh, this last year, Notre, I mean, Notre Dame had 10-plus 10 10 interceptions in 2018. They had 12. 2017, they had 10. Uh, 2000, yeah, I guess they didn't have as many. Uh, 2014, they had 16, um, 13 the year before. You know, I was thinking in 2019 they had a lot more interceptions, but they had a ton of fumbles. They forced a lot of fumbles yeah. that year because they were one of the top teams in the country in 2019 in forcing turnovers. But I mean, look to me, I think a big part of of that interception is is goes back Brian to what we talked about before, which is it leads to that question about the sluggos and such. They're getting a lot of picks because they're very aggressive in coverage. They jump routes. They play a lot of man. There's a lot more contested throws. There's, you know, get, getting your hands on a lot more throws, things like that. And I think those things lead to interceptions. But the other part of it, too, is 
you're not going to be great at forcing a lot of interceptions and turnovers if you aren't getting after the quarterback. Yeah. And I no think question. that that's the thing for me that when I look at this defense and I say, yeah, I expect them to be more in, involved and active. Right. Uh, but it's it's for me, it's going to be about are you getting your hands on a, on a lot of passes? And and that's going to be a, a big thing for me. And and when you watch Cincinnati over the years, they've done that. The, the interesting thing about Notre Dame is, though, Vince, Notre Dame in recent seasons has gotten a lot of pass breakups. They just don't make a lot of interceptions. Last yeah. year, Notre Dame ranked fifth in the nation in pass breakups. They only <laughs> had seven interceptions. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it is kind of interesting. And, and, you know, you, you wonder about kind of why part of that is, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a little strange, but in other years, Notre Dame didn't get as many pass breakups, but I think it's the nature of the coverage playing more man. Um, I think having a safety in the middle of the field can help with some of that too. I think having linebackers that are really effective in coverage is a big part of that too. Sure. Uh, you know, I think that's a, that's another big thing. And when you, when, you know, you look at Cincinnati last year, you know, they had four interceptions from their linebackers. Well, you know, their Rover had two. Darian Beavers was their Will linebacker, had a couple. They had 16 in only 10 games, you know. But, I mean, to me, that's 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 the big thing for me is just you, you getting your linebackers more involved in coverage should help with that as well. Uh, interesting one here from Connor. Uh, I will defer to you on I this I haven't one. seen that. Okay, I have not seen it either. So I guess that's something I'm going to have to look up. So I'm going to write that down. Yeah. Uh, because um, – I have not seen it, so I so guess he, I'm going to have homework. Missouri, the Missouri quarterback is the one being mocked by Texas players, or the Missouri quarterback is mocking Texas players? I, I, it, so, I think it looks like Texas is mocking him. Gotcha. I'm sorry. So, Texas shouldn't be mocking anyone at this point in time. <laughs> but I, I, I don't I don't know what this one is. I don't know what that's about. So, Are you looking it up right now? Are you cheating? Yeah. I, okay. I'm, I don't see anything. So yeah, hey Connor, if 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 there's like a link or something, throw the like link that, in the chat. You, yeah, can you do that? Because I mean, I'll I'll, t- I'll look at it during the show, but I don't I don't have a clue what you're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, I apologize. I don't. Connor's either. the first person ever stumped me on a question. Wow. Hey. So I did say you can watch. You can ask anything related to college football. But hey, he, yeah, he said it's a free for all Friday. Yeah. So here yeah, we go. It is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's good. Uh, it's Michael, uh, and we'll come back to that one if if we find it. But uh, Michael says, "Hey Brian and Vince." TGIF, with uh, what you know, which of the 23 prospects have you spoken with that you feel is destined to commit to Notre Dame that could be a leader of the class like Fisher was? I assume leader as in ability or leader as in, you know, from a, a vocal I think he's talking about leadership both. from like a getting okay. kids in the class. Okay, so that's what say, he was both. Fisher was great at, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really early. For, I mean, it's really early for me for that. I mean, obviously, if, it, if they can quarterback in the class, that would help. You know, I, I keep getting asked about 23, and I'm like, look, can we – we're not even halfway done with the, the 2022 class yet. We haven't even had official visits yet for the 2022 right. class. Can we, like, do that first? like sophomores, man. That's You yeah. know, but I think Carnell Tate could be one of those guys, and that's why he's an important recruit since he was asked about early. Because he's an Illinois kid, but he's also an IMG. You know, he's going to have some of that that IMG uh, persona. But, I mean, to me, it's going to be whoever they get at quarterback. And that's why I'm hoping that they can identify a quarterback somewhat soon. Yeah. And and say and, and be able to go get him. You know, whether it's Dante Moore, whether it's Ricky Collins, whether it's somebody like that. I mean, I think quarterbacks are, are, are natural leaders. The other part of it, too, Vince, is uh, the, some of the better leaders are guys that are somewhat local. And I think there's a, a need 
there's kind of a need for that. I think it's it's nice to have a local kid that can be a quote unquote leader of your class because the local kids are at a lot of the games. Yeah. And you know, and that's a big part of that too. So whenever there's visits, is that kid on campus? Is he gonna be around? You know, because there's only so much that you can do when you start looking around and saying, you know, hey, uh, come visit campus, you know, be around me. And that's the thing that's interesting so far about this this class is there's not a ton of local players that right now Notre Dame's super high on with one exception, and that'd be Drake Bowen. I think he's a guy to me that could be a leader of the class because he's local. He's highly ranked. He seems to be pretty social, social media active. You know, he, he seems to tweet a lot on social media and stuff like that. seems like he has a little bit of swagger to him. So I think that would be a guy that, that I would look at and say, if they're able to get him in the class early, that could be one that, that, um, that moves it. And then after that, you start looking at other players and who could have regional impacts. You know, if Notre Dame's able to get Keon Keeley from down in Florida, uh, from Berkeley Prep, you know, if they're able to get him in the class early, I think he's going to be a relatively highly ranked player. He's really impressive. Brian Smith sent me some some videos of his spring jamboree game, and boy, that kid's gotten better as, a, as, as he heads into his junior season. So that's the best I can do for you. But I'm just, I'm just not as fully locked in on 2023 sure. yet. Because it's, it's, you know, the, most of those kids have never been on Notre Dame's campus. Right. So until they That's do, huge. we're not going to really know truly where they stand with Notre Dame. John has more of a comment, uh, but he says Notre Dame needs to get back to smashing teams in order to get the backups into quality snaps. Development has to happen for the 22 season to be a success. I Look, I agree that, that development needs to happen for 22 because the 22 schedule is way harder than the 21 schedule. But I think that development needs to happen regardless of whether they're getting guys in for mop-up duty. I, I want rotational. I want, you know, I want them to develop guys as part of their uh, their game plan anyway. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I want to see more bodies in because I think the depth chart at a lot of these positions warrants that some of those guys see the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know from, and I'm not, I'm not banging John in any way. Um, but when you're when you're smoking a team and you get a guy in for mop up duty, I don't know that that really develops a kid. Yeah, it gets him in front of eighty thousand. I think it. it I think it does if they're. And this is just from my experience. Yeah. I think it does if it's a situation where you're letting them run the offense. And, okay, uh, that's oh, the difference. Very good. I, I appreciate the, the clarification because when I think of mop up duty, uh-huh. it's you're running the same five plays over again. They're all run play. You know, it's yeah. Just basic, let's not screw this up yeah. and keep the clock moving. And I think that's also partly about the position. I think there's some positions where, you know, an offensive lineman's going to get something out of out of just coming out. True. I mean, I think it's quarterbacks and receivers. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's – but see, the other thing, too, is when you're smashing teams, you can start getting guys in in the third quarter. You don't right. necessarily do a mass substitution. Right. But, you know, let's just say Lorenzo Styles is – is they like him, but there's just a couple areas where we're not like in Notre Dame, like don't play him till he know, master the whole offense, but just normal right. teams. Say, you know, he's he's close, but we're, we're we're just not sure of a couple things. And then so you're beating Florida State pretty convincingly, or you're beating Purdue pretty convincingly. So you know what you do is you don't wait till the fourth quarter when you're just going to hand a ball off. You get Lorenzo in early third quarter. You go over halftime with him. Hey, Lorenzo, here's some things we want to see you right. do. Yes. And then you get him Absolutely. out in the third quarter with your first team offense and get Absolutely. him some work that way. I think those are, but those are things you can only really do when you're to, to John's point when you're smashing somebody like 
the Notre Dame USC game was over at halftime in 2017. You know, I mean, that was a big one. They didn't really start really steamrolling Michigan State till the third quarter. You know, because if you remember that game, USC was about to score a touchdown to make it a seven point game. Remember that Notre Dame was up 21 7. Uh, I think it was, I think it was, I can't remember who the running back was, but the running back gets to the goal line. Sean Crawford rips the ball out. Notre Dame recovers, goes down and scores to make it 28 7 late in the second quarter. So that game was competitive, at least through the sure. half. And then in the third quarter, Notre Dame really, really took it away. But, um, you know, the USC game, that was a beatdown. Oh, yeah. uh, that was the game you could have started getting some guys in in the third quarter. And those are the games, to John's point, those are the games where I want to start seeing. Yes. You know, let's say Rocco Spindler's not starting. You're you're up on Toledo by three or four touchdowns. You want to put him in at halftime or put him in late right. in the second quarter? Go for put it. Put him in with everybody else. You but know, you're not going to do that. Straight yeah. second but you're not going to do that when it's a 17 to 14 game against right. Wisconsin. Unless unless he's in a predetermined rotation, right. you know. Right. Uh, but that's not right. development. He's already he's already there. Good point. Uh let's see here. Mark Stallman has a question about Marcus Freeman. Will he be a one and done if successful this year? What would it do to the program? I I think we've talked about this as well. We are kind of under the assumption that it's it's a two-year deal uh, minimum, right? I mean, and I don't know if you're hearing that officially or if that's what you're hoping for. Well, there's I, nothing official. There's Unfortunately, I, and this is something I wish point. would change in contracts, I wish that, that college, colleges would make contracts. I wish that was, you know, again, if we're going to bang on kids for leaving, then I wish that we would make contracts where it's a little bit more you know, painful to just yeah. get out of a contract by a certain time. Sure. If you're in a five-year contract and you get through three years, okay, fine. But if you've signed a four-year contract, you can't leave after year one unless it's going to cost that other school a big chunk of change or something like that. But, I mean, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But So it's not official, but it's just more of just like, a, hey, I'm committing to this is what I was told. Sure. And and honestly, I don't, I don't think Marcus Freeman is going to leave Notre Dame for a job, with all due respect to Clark Lee, Vanderbilt. I think Vanderbilt was a unique situation for Clark unique. Lee because it was yeah. his alma mater. Right. Right. I don't see him leaving for like Virginia Tech. I just it doesn't make a lot of sense. Number right. one, he he could have a shot to have this job in a couple years. Sure. Why would you leave for like Virginia Tech or or you know a job like that? And the only big job that I could see opening up as of right now that might be attractive is a job for a school that he spent much of his life not even being willing to say the name of the state, and that's Michigan. I don't see an Ohio State grad that grew up in Ohio taking the Michigan job. I'm really, especially when the Notre Dame job could be there for him. Yeah, in a couple of years. so I don't see that either. I just don't see him leaving after this year. And 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 what it would do for the program is it would it would make Notre Dame even more attractive for big time assistant coaches. That's what it would do. It would say, you know what, you can go to Notre Dame and if you have success as a young coordinator, you're a head coach, you're going to get a big time head coaching job. Yeah. And I think yeah. the other part of it is, I would imagine. So I think Marcus Freeman getting hired is also a great thing for Mike Mickens because I think it's a defense that Mike Mickens knows. They coach together for years at Cincinnati, for multiple years at Cincinnati. They know each other. I think that Mike Mickens is kind of being – I don't know if he's being groomed officially, but I think it's kind of like, you know, I'm seeing him grooming, being groomed, whether it's official or unofficial, to sort of be Marcus Freeman's Clark Lee to Mike Elko. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Whether it's Marcus Freeman becomes the head coach at Notre Dame or Marcus Freeman goes somewhere else, then Mike Mickens slides right into that job because uh, he'll have been at Notre Dame then for a couple of years, had some success, and then you know he'll he'll now 
be a guy that to me could just continue doing sure. what with with this defense what what Mike what uh, Clark Lee did when Mike Elko left after a year because that's the panic that people have oh my gosh you know Mike Elko's leaving after one year what did it do to the program then nothing it, they got better because he had yeah. laid a great foundation one of his assistants who knew the offense who'd coached with him in the past took over who'd never been a D coordinator that worked out pretty well uh, right. and I think Mike Mickens would be able to do the same thing in my yep. opinion so I, I, I think it, and to Mark's point I think it would make no it, the more you can start producing big-time coaches into, into Power 5 jobs, the more attractive your school becomes when you sure. want to make that next hire. Absolutely. Yep. All right. The time is nigh. It is 2 o'clock, and so I am going to You've got to stay out. around for this next question, Vince, even if you're just watching. All right. So Allison T. says, <laughs> new around here, love the show. In retrospect, how did you see recent Notre Dame stars, say JOK, Book, and Eichenberg coming I'm out of high school? very interested to hear this. How would yeah. you hear how they compare? So I'm going to show you. I have found the article that I wrote oh, after nice. signing okay. day about Ian Book. Okay? I'm going to back out, but I'm going to keep watching. You'll yes. see me in the, so, in the so corner. This is You'll what see I wrote. me in the corner. Yep. This I, is what I wrote about Ian Book in 2016. So let's see if you can see it. All right. I'm going to try to make that bigger. So here's here's what I said. I want you to focus on this part right here. So I said, in fact, he compares more favorably to former Irish quarterback Tommy Reese getting by more getting by more on moxie, intelligence, and attitude than raw tools. Unlike Reese, books book is a quality athlete that projects to process the ability, or excuse me, the, possess the ability to extend plays at the next level. His arm is good enough to make most throws, and he can move the chains with the read option. He is not a player that is going to put a team on his shoulders due to his physical tools. What he is, however, is a player that in time has enough physical skills, which he combines with impressive between the ears and in the chest traits to lead a team. If surrounded with enough talent and Notre Dame will surround its quarterback without saving talent in the next few years, he could prove to be a winner. I, I think I pretty much nailed that one. Don't you think? <laughs> so um, now the number one guy in the class for me that year, however, was uh, in 2016 was Liam Eikenberg. Uh, I thought Liam Eikenberg was a star. If people knew me from Rivals, I used to bang Rivals all the time because they had him as a three-star until the very end. He was my number one player in the class. I had Jeremiah Usukoromoa as a four-star player with a four-and-a-half-star upside. I think he even outplayed what I thought he could be. I thought he was going to be a really good player. He even outplayed what I thought he could be. He was a guy that I thought would need time to develop because of his size, and he was young. He showed up at Notre Dame at 17. He didn't turn 18 until the end of his freshman year at Notre Dame. And so I thought he needed time to develop, and that's what he did. So, I I mean, look, I've had plenty of misses. I had Javon McKinley as my number two player in that 2016 class. I, that was a miss. He, he did not pan out to be the player that I thought he would be. But I think there's been a lot that I've gotten right, and I think the three that you brought up, Allison, I nailed, uh, in, in my opinion. So I, I think I got those – I think I got those pretty right. So, um so yeah, I'm patting myself a little bit on the back on that one. But when you said that, I started looking it up because I, I remember saying good things about Ian Book, and I didn't think he'd be like a great player, but I thought he could be a winner if you put enough talent around him, and it's exactly what happened. All right. Let's see, IUP Jess 2001 with talk of offensive changes and some previous reluctance to adopt them. Reluctance to adopt them. What do you believe Coach Kelly's preferred offensive philosophy is, and what would he run if he had no limitations? So I wrote an article back in February, and this is a great question. And I said, the thing that Brian Kelly needs to do if he wants to get over that final hump, and again, we should all be able to agree that Brian Kelly has brought this program out a long way in 11 seasons. One of the things that I think that 
has kept him from getting over the top and, and climbing to the top of the mountain, whatever closing the gap, whatever phrase you want to use, is that he went away from from what got him here. And if you look at what he did at Grand Valley State, if you look at what he did against at Central Michigan and Cincinnati, he had explosive, tempo, aggressive offenses. There was a three-year stretch at Grand Valley State where they won two national titles in which their offense scored about 50 points at the game. They averaged over 200 yards during that time and about th- rushing and about 300 yards passing during that stretch. And I believe that if Kurt Ains doesn't get hurt in the playoffs of the first the, the year before the two titles, I think it'd be 2000. So I, I think they won in, in 01 and 02, or they I think they won in 01 and 02, and then four and five. I think it could be pushed back a year, but the year before they won their first two titles, that they, they had to, they, they're off. They would have won the title if Kurt, their starting quarterback, doesn't get hurt. He got hurt in the playoffs, and they they lost a low scoring game in I think the semifinals of the championship game. They would have won three titles in a row and they would have scored a lot of points doing it. And and at the time, the GLIAC was a great conference. I mean, Saginaw Valley State was in the playoff every year along with Grand Valley. So to put up the kind of numbers they put up, they weren't doing it against weak competition. And and they they were explosive, high powered Cincinnati in 2009, I think Cincinnati finished third or fourth in scoring. They were an aggressive, throw the ball down the field, attack defenses type of team, run a lot of plays. He went away from that at Notre Dame. And I think that if that his reluctance to, to do the things that we've talked about is more of a Notre Dame thing, he didn't have that reluctance as other places. So I think if you say there's no limitations, meaning you know, there's no influence from past coaches, there's no influence from boosters, no, there's no, there's no influence whatsoever. What would Brian Kelly want to run? I think Brian Kelly would want to run a more aggressive up-tempo offense, which is why I think ultimately he's going to hire Tommy, you know, excuse me, allow Tommy Reese to get to that point. And and if he does, I thought, you know, I thought that um, I think that this that's the thing that's going to allow this team to take that next step because for two reasons. Number one, it's going to allow them be, to be more successful in those big games because they're going to score more points. Number two, if Notre Dame starts scoring 39, 40, 41 points per game, and they start throwing the ball a little bit more effectively, then all of a sudden they become even more attractive to some of those recruits that you're not getting right now, especially quarter, the elite quarterbacks that people obsess over. And now all of a sudden you you start getting those guys and, and you take the final step. Brian Denbo says, I was at the Wake Forest game. That would be 2017. Thought they looked different in the second half. Yeah, defensively they looked different in the second half. But remember, late in the second quarter, Brandon had that long touchdown run. And, and he dove and he he got his hand hit and he hurt his hand. He played on it in the second half. They took him out a little bit early. He threw for, I think, like 280 yards, rushed for over 100 yards. It was by far the best game of his career. But he was just never the same after that because, I mean, I don't know if it was the hand, if it got in his head. I don't know. I don't know what the issue is. But, uh, yeah, that was um, that was a, a little bit of a – that team just – how as, as good as they played, they just – they never – they never, they never were the same after that, after that second half against Wake Forest. John Klimek responded to IUP Jess. I think Kelly early Kelly was innovated and pushed. I think Kelly is now more about ball control and grinding. Okay, Gareth says, "Hey Brian, I'm a bit salty that the questions I emailed you didn't get into last week's mailbag. So even though I can't listen while I'm at my desk, I have your show up." So I can drop these. I am sorry that you're salty about that, Gareth. I do apologize, but it looks like you got some of those questions in. 
Um, so he says, I'll listen later to the podcast and look forward to hearing your answers. So here's, here's Garrett's few questions. So let's get into these. First of all, how is your hiatus from pop going? I hope you're able to stick with it. Good luck. It's been up and down, mostly up. I've had a couple here and there, especially when you go out to dinner, but this is, this has got tea in it. This beautiful Irish breakdown mug has tea in it. And I put honey in it because honey's good for you if you have it in the right amount. And it gives me a little bit of that caffeine fix. And it keeps me, it, the big reason I like pop is it's really sweet. I love the sweetness of pop, especially Mountain Dew, but it's obviously very bad for you. And so trying to find other drinks that can give me some of that sweet feel, that sweet taste without being super high in sugar is challenging. And so natural honey and tea is one. Uh, I'll drink a, a, a glass of grape juice a day. So that way I'm at least getting the benefits of it, but then not having so much that <laughs> I'm having a ton of sugar. So it's going, it's going good so far. I still, I mean, I still drink very little pop. Uh, I'm not on a complete zero pop diet, but I drink very little and it's helped me lose some weight so far. And I've got a lot more to go. Gareth then asks Jordan, appreciate the, the question there, Gareth. I appreciate your concern. Jordan Johnson, from your perspective, would it be better for Notre Dame recruiting if they never signed him or does the positive of landing a big time recruit outweigh the negative of losing him? Honestly, Gareth, I don't think it has the impact either way that people think that it did. I think that that landing him, he wasn't a real active recruiter, so I don't think having him in the class necessarily benefited getting anyone else. I don't think signing a top recruit is nearly as important as, as someone performing well. And I think a guy performing well that wasn't a top recruit and going and getting drafted is, is going to have a similar impact. I just I, I get where, where where you and a lot of people are coming from about you know the look of this, but I just don't think it has that kind of look. If anything, you know what you can say to to recruits is you can spin this in your favor if you're Notre Dame and say, hey, look, we're going to play the best players, and I don't care if you're a five star recruit or a three star recruit or whatever. If you're not one of our best players, you're not going to play, and that's something you can sell to these guys. Like, hey, look, man you know, we got really good players here and, and you can come here and and if you're good enough to play, you're going to play. And if not, then we'll play you. We won't play you. So I, I just don't think it's going to hurt. I think it, one loss like this doesn't hurt Notre Dame. If this becomes a pattern, you know, let's say Lorenzo Styles doesn't pan out, he transfers or Deion Colsey transfers, then you start getting concerned because it becomes a pattern. But I don't think just losing Jordan Johnson by himself is going to necessarily hurt you. And I think the fact that he went to Central Florida – uh, takes away some of the sting as well. It's not like, you know, like Ohio State lost a kid, Jamison Williams. They lost him to Alabama. I think that kind of stings a little bit. I think losing him to Central Florida doesn't. If anything, it, it validates. I don't I don't agree with this. I, I don't. But I'm looking at it from a recruiting standpoint. I think it validates that, you know, maybe Notre Dame was right because he went to a group of five school as opposed to going to a power five school. I don't agree with that. But I think that's how you can spin it if you're Notre Dame and, and spin it effectively. Gareth asks, QB coaching, is there any chance that Notre Dame hires a Chris Watt type coach to support Tommy and QD development as was done with the O-line a couple years ago? No, I don't think so. And I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want that. And and I get where you're coming from, and it makes a lot of sense because I have a feeling you're looking at this, Gareth, from like comments that I've made about the O-line, which is, you know, and I and I made this comment with Chip Long at tight end is when you're the offensive coordinator, you got a lot on your plate. You know, can you also coach the quarterback? Well, I think quarterback is one position where it's even better to have your OC be the quarterback's coach because everything goes through the quarterback. And so as you're installing the offense, you're you're coaching your quarterback. 
I don't think Coach Reese needs help coaching quarterbacks also because I'm a big believer that the quarterback should have as few voices as possible in his head. And I don't want an offensive coordinator and a quarterback's coach and the head coach in his ear. And offensive line coaches are always going to have their input for for quarterbacks. I want, if possible, I want one voice in the quarterback's head, and that's it. That's never going to be possible with Brian Kelly's head coach, but at least you can limit it to two. And and so I, I would not necessarily want to see that. All right, Gareth, last couple. Uh, if you, if you, I know you're super high on Bradshaw. You have also said that it isn't the end of the world if you miss on any one player, uh, even if it is a big loss. So if Notre Dame doesn't get Bradshaw, then fill in the blank. It is a big loss. And look, it's not the end of the world if you miss one player, but it's a big loss if you don't get Xavier Bradshaw, because as we talked about in the, the wide receiver podcast the other day, there's nobody else on the board like him. If you don't get him, then you're going to get good players. You know, you could get C.J. Williams and Tobias Merriweather. They're very good football players. Nickus Anderson's a solid football player, but they're all exactly like what Notre Dame has always had, big, tall, outside guys. Who's that guy that can turn a slant route into a big play? You know, who's that guy that can take a bubble screen and make a big play out of it? You need those plays to win these games, these big games that Notre Dame isn't winning. And if you don't have a guy like Xavier Bradshaw, and you don't get guys like him on a consistent basis, then your offense becomes very limited. You put even more pressure on your quarterback to have to always be right and effective down the field, which is harder and harder in the big games. And you, you just look, Alabama beat Notre Dame, and their quarterback completed a grand total of zero passes beyond 20 yards. He only attempted one because he was able to effectively get the ball out quickly, which negated Notre Dame's pass rush. Because if you go back and look at that game, Notre Dame was getting pressure on, on Mac Jones, which is partly why they didn't throw the ball down the field. But they didn't have to because they knew they could attack the perimeter, get the ball out quickly with the run game, get the ball out quickly in the pass game, make people miss, and pick up yards. Notre Dame doesn't really have the ability to do that, or at least they haven't used players like that. And when you get in those games, it can be a lot more difficult if you're constantly having to beat teams down the field with a vertical passing game. All righty. David Jones says, wow, BD, have you ever thought about being an attorney? You just made excellent cases for the Miami loss being the worst in the BK era and for Stanford and USA being among the best wins. I have not uh, a lot of reasons. Number one, I would never have the grades to get into law school. And I actually worked for my dad. My dad is a process server in Norfolk, in the Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads area. So I've been around a lot of lawyers uh, in my day. I used to work for him in high school. I used to work for him over the summers uh, when I'd come home uh, when I was in college and work for him over the summers to make some extra money before I had to report back to, to fall camp. And it was never a job that necessarily interested me at all. I have a great deal of respect for attorneys. Uh, it's just it was one of those things where being around that profession was like, yeah, not for me. And you had to wear suits all the time. And I hate wearing suits. And that's one of the things I loved about being a college football coach is I could wear shorts and a T-shirt or warm-up pants to work. And the only time I had to wear a suit was when people came on visits for recruiting. So that, not going to lie, that's one of the things I liked about being a college football coach. Shane O'Shea says, would Notre Dame have a championship if Urban Meyer chooses Notre Dame over Florida? Yes. Urban Meyer would have won a national championship at Notre Dame. I have I have no doubt about it because he would have see here's the thing he would have man if he would have hired him if they would have hired him he would have taken that job because Notre Dame made guarantees about changes they were going to make with the program the facilities with recruiting all of that 
he would have only taken the job if they made those if they made those changes. It wasn't about money. It was about Urban knew because he had been at Notre Dame and he knew the leadership at Notre Dame and he knew that they weren't going to support the football team. And that was a factor in why he didn't come because the program wasn't as supportive as the football team then as they are now since Jack Swarbrick's been around. And, and so, look, a head coach is a is the primary driver of success, but you need support of the institution, financial support, because you have to, I mean, look at the hundreds, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars that Jack Swarbrick was able to raise and account for in regards to building the, the stadium expansion, the new turf field, the indoor facility, all the changes they've made around Notre Dame, that's not cheap. And that doesn't get covered with your TV contract or, or, or money from attendance at games. you got to raise that money. But you're not raising that money if you have this ridiculous idea of, well, we don't need a, we don't need those things. We're not going to get into the arms race and all this other nonsense, which is what the stand, stand was at Notre Dame at the time. And that's that that he would have only taken a job if they were willing to change that. So if they were willing to change that and you hired Urban Meyer, there's no doubt in my mind he would have won a national title. Jay asks, what five former Notre Dame players would help Notre Dame win a natty this year? This is a good question. And um, I'd like to hear everybody's opinions on this. So if I look at the makeup of the current team, uh, if there are five, if there are five players that I can have. I would number one. So I'm just going to say, okay, so former players, let's just go with people that are like from, let's go with like 2000 and on. Okay. So let's not go back to like, ah, if they could have, you know, Leon Hart, let's just keep it since 2000 on. Um, no, let's go 1988 and on. Cause there's one. Okay. Rocket Ismail. I would love, 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 love to see rocket Ismail in a modern offense. He's obviously one, uh, Quentin Nelson, <laughs> getting Quentin Nelson back. Can I get Quentin Nelson and Ronnie Stanley back with Rocket Ismail? That would make me feel really good about where things stand right now. Can I get um, Can I get uh, Harrison Smith back at safety so I can play Harrison Smith as my strong safety and Kyle Hamilton as my free safety? I feel pretty good about that. And see, one more, I would have to go with Jalen Smith. If I could get Jalen Smith at linebacker, Harrison Smith at safety, Quentin Nelson and Ronnie Stanley on the offensive line, and if I could have Rocket Ismail as my as my in my in my offense, then I don't necessarily need Brady Quinn or Jimmy Clausen or who are the. My first thought was Brady Quinn, but I'm like, you know, look, you give me Rocket and and Big Q and Ronnie Stanley and Jalen Smith and Harrison Smith on defense. Good luck beating that team. <laughs> Absolutely good luck beating that team. Like, yeah, we're not going to guard Michael Mayer today because we're still trying to stop Rocket Ismail. I mean, could you imagine Rocket Ismail on RPOs and jet sweeps and, and stuff that modern offenses do? Oh, goodness. Gareth says, uh, just just kidding about being salty, just giving you a hard time. Buddy, you're fine. Trust me. We've we've corresponded enough. Uh, I, I know you're, you, were, you were just giving me a hard time. I appreciate that. I appreciate you taking the time to, to get those questions in today, and I hope that when you're sitting back listening to the show that uh, – that you you like those answers and follow up with me if if you want more 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 from it or don't think I answered it the way that you wanted it. Tracy Tip asks, "What are the realistic number of catches for running the running backs this year?" <sighs> realistic number? I mean, I hope they're at least at sixty. I mean, honestly, I, I think that's a realistic number. If you look at last year, Kyron Williams had thirty five. Chris Tyree had eight. That's forty three. 
You had Sebo had two. That's 45. So they had 45 last year in 12 games. You know, this year they're going to play 13 games. I, I would absolutely expect at least 15 catches to be added. I think that would not be a, a big issue at all. I think they could certainly do that. John Climax says, I love how we know Mayer's that good, but I see these per season lists of top tight ends with no mention of Mayer. I've only seen the one from Pro Football Focus, John. Uh, I don't know what other ones you've seen, but I thought the one from Pro Football Focus was comical. But I, I look, I, I don't get it. I, I have, but this is something we see all the time. I mean, we see it all the time how people have these lists and there's no Notre Dame players. And then by the end of the year, lo and behold, guess what? Those guys are there. So I don't lose too much sleep over it. I mean, we, we watch the film. I, I've talked to enough people that aren't related with Notre Dame, and I've talked to people that are related with Notre Dame. Anyone that's actually watched Notre Dame with any regularity knows that Michael Mayer is an absolute monster. And that's based on what he did, not what we think he can do, just what he's already done. Lauren Hamilton says, which tight end or other player is best fit for fullback? Uh, you know, I'd probably go right now. And again, we haven't seen him a whole lot because, um, you know, he, he was injured in the blue gold game. But when I'm just thinking about body type, I think the two guys that fit best for me are Kevin Bauman and Kane Barong. I think those are two guys that are tough blockers. They've got a little bit of a shorter build, uh, which to me, you don't want necessarily a six five guy being a fullback because you need to you need to be able to get under pads. And if you're six five, six six, you got guys getting up underneath your pads. Kevin Bauman and Kane Barong are both listed at like six three, six four, but they're a little squattier. They both bend well, and I think they'd be a very effective, very effective guys from that position. And um, Lauren also says. Cool. Could be cool to get some straight up carries from the fullback. Yeah, maybe in some goal line situations. I, I was surprised we we didn't see. I think we saw what Tommy Trumbull get what like one carry last year. He got a carry last year, I believe, right? Or was it the year before? Try, yeah, he got a carry last year. Carried once for four yards. I think if you have like a Tommy Trumbull type, sure. But you know, I I think Lauren to kind of kind of cheating a little bit, but fitting into what you're talking about. That's why I like the notion of two running backs because I think Kyron Williams is a tough kid. I could see situations where you're running an outside zone, and we actually saw it a little bit last year on some jet sweeps where Kyron Williams would get out there and, and lead block. I Look, one of the biggest plays that Notre Dame has had in the bowl game was the C.J. Procise 50-yard run against LSU, if you remember that, on a jet sweep. Go back and watch the lead block that Torian Folston had on that play. I think that can be effective. It's not technically a fullback, so I'm a little bit cheating on your question, Lauren, but uh, I, I think that would be an effective way of using the two backs as well, where it's not just always passing and getting the ball outside, where you have some run aspects to it as well. Technical technician says, Coach, how impressive is Billy Shrouse's physical capabilities? Watching and reading about him, it is obvious how important physical training is to him from an O-line alignment. His physique is mind-blowing. You know, I, I haven't really looked at his physique other than when he's in pads but he is an impressive impressive football player i mean he's an interior guy i don't think he's a tackle he even plays guard in high school but his explosiveness off the ball is outstanding he was i liked him as a sophomore i loved him as a junior and he played he had was one of those guys that had a spring football season he's explosive he's powerful his short area quickness is is really top notch he's got fast hands he's got really good punch he plays. He can play a little out of control a little bit when you project him to the next level, but there is a ton, a ton that you can do with him, and he can trap, he can pull, he's a good pass blocker on the inside. 
Billy Shrouth to me is a top 100 caliber football player as an interior player. And you got to be pretty dang good to be an interior player and be a top 100 guy. Um, he is he is really impressive. And if he can make the kind of jump as a senior that he made as a as a sophomore to junior and then make that jump from junior to senior, you know, he could be a guy that we're talking about having a similar path that Rocco Spindler had where he could be competing for early playing time. John Climax 5 to, to the question earlier from Jay is uh, Julian Love, Harrison Smith, Quentin Nelson, Mike McGlinchey, and Chase Claypool. If we had to go like of just Brian Kelly era players to, to answer the question, uh, my picks would be Will Fuller, no question about it. Uh, Quentin Nelson's always going to be on the list. Ronnie Stanley, in my opinion, was a much better offensive lineman than Mike McGlinchey. Uh, I think Liam Eikenberg was a better offensive lineman than Mike McGlinchey. I think Mike McGlinchey was very good, but but he was a he wasn't always a very good pass blocker, and I think that's very important. So I'm going Will Fuller. I'm going uh, Quentin Nelson. I'm going Ronnie Stanley. I'm going Jalen Smith, and I'm going Harrison Smith. That's my five. So if I couldn't use the the 1980s guys, that would be my five. If I had to use just Brian Kelly area players, that would be my five. Liam Gaming says, if BC has a good year, does Halfley move on to bigger and better things? Possibly, but I think part of that's going to depend on, you know, what he feels he has coming back that next year. I mean, you know, he's he's recruiting like a guy that anticipates being somewhere for a while. Uh, so I, I, I like that. But, you know, I, I think if Jerkovic leaves after this year and goes pro, he's going to lose a lot and you could maybe see him saying, okay, now's the time to, to go. But if Dracovic decides to come back in 2022 for a fifth year, I could see him staying and saying, Hey, you know, let's, let's ride this thing out. Uh, Searcher green, former Notre Dame commit Parker Boudreau is now signed with the WWE. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty hilarious. One of, uh, one of my former players, he, he, I didn't coach his position. He played D line for us, but we had a kid, that uh, is now in the WWF. The, when I was at Christopher Newport, his name's Mojo Rowley. That's not his real name, but that's his his character name. Uh, so it's it's pretty funny. I just kind of see him, and I'm like, you know, he kinda, and so you see his character, and like that's kind of how he was in in college too. Really, very highly energetic guy with a lot of energy. Brian Denbo, how about some sort of Avery Davis flea flicker? I could see that. I just want to see Avery Davis throwing a football or two this year. John Climax says. Um, in regards to the play call specific, I'm leaning RPO at Fisher. If it's a pass, and this is back to the earlier question of the first play of the season. So this is what, if you missed that, we were asked, you know, kind of what the first play of the season will be. If it's a pass, will be to the outside with Mayer running up the middle, keeping a safety over the top. I like that. I like that. Let's see here. This is an interesting question. I want to I want to read this here real quick. Just your ordinary Joe out there in college football, are there programs which are more competitive by nature of being tied into research expertise within the university at large? Examples, exercise physiology, biomedical engineering, virtual reality simulations, et cetera. Do you believe there's an opportunity at Notre Dame to leverage untapped expertise along these lines? I do think one thing Notre Dame is doing is tapping more into sort of the business program when it comes to a lot of marketing things. But look, I, I think there's something to that. I mean, these things have to relate specifically to football, but I, I mean, I don't know. I can't answer your question. I don't know what other teams do in regards to using certain programs from their schools. It's just not something I've ever asked or did research on, but I would imagine great coaches do those things. I mean, I mean, Gatorade started right with people at the university of Florida trying to find better ways to hydrate their football team. I mean, that's how Gatorade started. Uh, there was, I think, a 30 for 30 or an SEC show about that. The ESPN did. It was phenomenal. It was really fascinating. 
But I think it would be smart to do those type of things. I just can't answer your question specifically to that. I would imagine that that smart coaches and good programs are taking advantage of the aspects of their pro of their school uh, in some ways. And, and I know Notre Dame is starting to do that a little bit when it comes to some of the marketing stuff that they're they're doing, and and allowing you know getting kids on that are part of the campus to get experience doing those things with the football program. Michael Moore says, "Why are we not getting the kids out of Chicago like we used to?" That's a very fair question, and part of it is because Notre Dame hasn't been recruiting a lot of the kids from Chicago. Um, they, they, Tyler Morris, they, you know, they missed on him. Which I'm okay with Caleb Brown. They didn't recruit. I mean, it's, they barely recruited him. So you're not going to get him if you don't recruit him. Uh, Pete Skaronsky was sort of outside Chicago, but they they slow played him. They didn't really want him. They got Pat Coogan out of Chicago last year. They got, um, they've got you know Justin Walters was kind of a Chicago area kid, I believe, you know, so they, they've gotten some kids from there, but a lot of them, they just, for whatever reason, haven't recruited some of them. They couldn't recruit. They weren't going to get into Notre Dame, but, um, yeah, we'll see Liam gaming. How about a double pass with Mitch Evans? He was a quarterback in high school. When his time comes, that would be something interesting to do, but I don't think that is going to be a first game, first play of the game type of thing. I think that'd be a little too obvious. Tony Stangle, great point on the Miami loss. Brian think the other one, just hurt more because it was Michigan. Yeah, I think emotionally, from a fan standpoint, the Michigan game hurt because two reasons. Number one, Michigan sucked. That was not a good Michigan team. At least Miami was like a top 10 team. I think they were an overrated top 10 team. They hadn't beaten anybody. But anytime you lose to Michigan, it hurts. And then when you lose to Michigan that bad, and then you know that Michigan's not on the schedule moving forward, so you can't get payback, that stings. From a fan standpoint, that, that stings. Absolutely stings. Chief Brody's, why do national media seem to think Notre Dame is bound for a down year? Uh, it, because it sells, it it generates discussion, and Notre Dame fans get mad about it and tune into their shows and click and listen. And what people like that have realized is that angry people still listen and tend to listen more. And um, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is, is because they're still not believe- – like, first of all, a lot of the national media don't really – in my opinion, no football. It's why they're constantly wrong about the teams they hype up. But I look at it and I say, you know, well, they, they, yeah, I saw one explanation. Well, look what happened. They played Alabama or Clemson. Okay. So don't rank them ahead of Alabama or Clemson. They're killing everybody else. You know, it's like you can put Iowa State above them. Well, look what happened when Notre Dame played Alabama. Well, what would happen if Iowa State had to play Alabama? You know, the fact that they're putting North Carolina ahead of them because they look at all the players Notre Dame lost and they just assume, well, you know, Notre Dame doesn't recruit top five classes. They don't have a lot of five stars in their roster. They make the same mistake a lot of fans do, which is, well, you know, they lost this player and this player was a high pick and they lost, oh, there's no way to replace that guy. Well, then they'll realize is that the guys that those guys replaced were really good and they said they had the same story. So, you know, it's just, it's just that constant, you know, people grab onto assumptions about Notre Dame and they still look at the, this Notre Dame team as like it was 10 years ago and it's not. So I think part of it is for clicks. Part of it is for show. Well, part of it is because people mention, I mean, I've, I've asked national media, uh, national media people questions about, you know, Hey, I'd like to have you on the show about Notre Dame. They're like, yeah, I don't really know a lot about the roster. Like seriously, like you're out there giving opinions every day about Notre Dame, but you don't know a lot about the roster. Maybe you should stop doing that. And so a lot of it is just group think. I think there's a lot of groupthink out there. I don't think people study as much as they used to. They don't watch film as much as they used to. And that's why, you know, I, there's some guys out there that I really like. That's why I've always liked Lewis Riddick. You know, I don't, I don't watch a lot of NFL, but I feel like if he's given an opinion, at least if even when I disagree with it, I feel like it's an educated opinion. 
And there's some guys like that. You know, it's why I've always liked Jonathan Vilma. I disagree with Jonathan Vilma often, but I feel like my disagreement comes from degrees, not necessarily like, what is this guy talking about? Like, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. There's so many analysts that they'll just say things. You're like, he's talking about a player that hasn't played in three weeks. Like, what, you know, what, what are you talking about? Like, you clearly don't have a, have a clue what you're, what you're doing. Joe says, just when it is a too just when is it too early to recruit players? I still remember when USC and Lane Kiffin offered Stills while he was in the eighth grade. He never panned out and ended up at West Virginia as a wide receiver. He never panned out as a as a quarterback, but he was a pretty flipping good wide receiver. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say that he didn't pan out. He was he ended up not being a big time recruit. But David Stills was a heck of a college football player. I mean, his last year at West Virginia, he caught 65 passes for 986 yards and 15 touchdowns. In 2017, he caught 60 passes for 980 yards and 18 touchdowns. So I'd say he's pretty. I'd say he's a pretty darn good football player. Uh, he just never panned out as a quarterback. I think eighth grade is way too early. Now, a lot of these schools are offering kids that early. The mistake USC made was that they took the kid's commitment. That was stupid. But you know. You offer kids early. That's fine. You have to get in the game. Notre Dame's offered a couple freshmen. You have to get yourself in the game now, unfortunately. But you also have to be patient enough to say, look, we can't take this kid this early because you have no idea how he's going to pan out. You, you just, just none. Jordan's joined us. Just got off some biz calls. Let me read and catch up so I don't repeat any questions. So I assume you're going to have some questions come up. We'll wait for it. So yeah, John Climax says, Grand Valley won in 02, 03, 05, and 06. So the 01 team is the one I'm talking about then. That team lost, I think it was the championship. I think they lost to North Dakota State. I'm actually gonna have to look that up. But if they had Kurt Ains, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have lost. And then Kelly left after 03, went to Central Michigan. He was there from 04 to 06, and then he was at Cincinnati from 07 to 09. And then Chuck Martin was the head coach for the 05 and 06 teams at Grand Valley State that won it. Michael Morris. In big games, do you think it's better to change things up to throw a team off balance, or or just to play your game and try not to make the big mistake? I mean, it depends on on the opponent. I mean, there's there's so many things that go into that. If if you feel like you're severely outmanned, then you got to try to mix things up. I think you always have to be you always have to be innovative from week to week in regards to you have to be, you know, some calls will work against certain teams because of the way that they play their defense, the way that the personnel matches up. In other weeks, you can say, well, we can't just run to the left like we did last week because they're much better on that side or, you know, they overload that side or they've got two great players on that side. So you have to mix it up formationally. You have to mix it up. Maybe the tendency that you have, you run more to the right. This week, you're going to run a play more to the boundary, whereas last week you ran it more to the field. There's always types of things like that. And I think you're always looking for ways to create big plays. In some games, you have to change things up even more because the other team is maybe schemed well. Maybe they have really good players. You have to do. You have to be a little bit more creative to create big plays. But your your goal in every game is to is to be efficient and explosive. And however you have to game plan to be efficient and explosive, and to just kind of play your game and not make a mistake. That's what you do when you are clearly the better team. If if when you're playing Navy, play your game and don't make a mistake. When you're playing, um. Alabama, Clemson, you have to be aggressive. You have to think outside the box a little bit. And, and that doesn't mean you're doing like triple reverse throwback stuff. You don't, you don't need to do all that. But you have to be a little bit more a little bit more creative. Omar Austin, going to the first play of the game. You took my first play guess, so I'll go with tight end post to mayor. There you go. 
Allison T asks, is there something specifically about Notre Dame that doesn't appeal to highly ranked five-star recruits as opposed to Ohio State, Bama, Clemson, et cetera, or is it all individual player reasons? It's both. I think most of it is individual player reasons. I think the one that can be a little bit more big picture is, is geography. Like if you're a kid from the South and you're a five-star player and your goal is to go to the NFL, why would you bypass if you're from, let's say you're from Miami, why would you bypass Florida, Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State to come to South Bend, Indiana? I think that's part of it. I think other parts of it has been there are times when when top recruits, and I don't think it's just five stars, but you know, top 50 guys, Notre Dame maybe could have got if they would have recruited them better. There's times where Notre Dame uh, some kids, it's you know, they want to win a championship. Notre Dame hasn't won a championship since 1988. I mean, some of these kids' parents were kids and babies the last time Notre Dame won a national championship. I mean, think about that. It's been over 30 years, you know. So there's there's some kids whose parents were very young the last time Notre Dame won a championship. So that's part of it. It's just they don't have that recent tradition, and it's why I think recruiting has improved as Notre Dame has had more success winning football games. So there's not just like one reason to say, oh, it's it's cold. What's well, cold in Columbus, and they still get kids from the South. Uh, oh, it's because kids don't care about academics. Some don't. Some do. Uh, I think it's it's naive to think that that every kid cares about academics. And if Notre Dame starts winning championships, then every single kid will want to go to Notre Dame. That's naive and wrong. To say that because a kid is a five-star, he doesn't care about, care about academics – is also wrong and and naive. So I think that it's an individual decision for each kid. And a lot of it has to do, in my opinion, with other schools in the last decade have proven to be more successful on the field and more successful when it comes to generating highly drafted players. Some guys want their want want handouts. That guy's gonna go to Georgia. He's not gonna come to Notre Dame, right? It's always gonna happen. And that's but that's been going on since you know, for decades, that's not new. If Notre Dame starts winning, they'll start getting more players. And it's not a coincidence that they, their last couple classes have been more highly ranked. And we've seen more of the five-star players. Michael Mayer was a five-star player. Kyle Hamilton was a five-star player. Blake Fisher was a five-star player, according to rivals. So they've gotten more of those high, Jordan Johnson was a five-star player. Notre Dame's getting more of those players because they're winning more. And that's kind of how it goes. If Allison, if Notre Dame goes out this year and makes another college football playoff appearance, you're going to see the recruiting go up even more because kids want to win. They want to play for championships and they want to be developed to the NFL. And it's in as Notre Dame keeps doing what they've been doing with the NFL draft and keep winning. You're going to see more of those players want to come. And, and that's a, to me, that's a, a big, the biggest reason why Notre Dame has not had the success recruiting the way that they used to have back in the day. Jordan Schreiber says, "My obviously, my mayor is already a five star, but what about the upside of Takis, Bauman, Barong, and Evans? And do you think Reese could utilize two tight ends like Belichick once did with Gronk and Hernandez? Certainly possible. They haven't done it in recent years, and that's something that I, you know, I wrote about recently. Jordan, I, maybe it's March, February, March. I wrote about this where I thought, you know, maybe it's even April. I, these months all bleed together." But so look, Notre Dame has to change how they use their tight ends. And some people lost their minds because they didn't actually read the article. They just responded to the headline. 
And the article basically said, look, the number one tight end is being used well. Michael Mayer caught a lot of balls last year. We've seen Notre Dame's number one tight end go be effective. But what we saw in 2020 was the number two and number three tight ends were used very infrequently in the pass game. And that's just from a usage standpoint. A guy can't catch a pass if he's not running a route. I was watching film with a friend the other day, and, and we, 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 drew, we watched this play against Georgia where Notre Dame had – Three guys running around, the tight end and the running back were both pass blocking. Georgia had a four-man pass rush, and the back and tight end just stood there blocking. Well, okay, you're not gonna have a lot of success when there's seven dudes dropping into coverage and four guys, you know, th you know, three guys in a route. You gotta be do a better job of utilizing those two positions in the pass game and not just your number one tight end. And so I, I think they need to do that. Now that's also why I'm not as concerned about the receiver situation because if Notre Dame gets a little thin at receiver and they can't do as much three receiver stuff, then to your point, Jordan, they can use more of Takis and Mayer or Bauman and Mayer or Barong and Mayer. And, and so I, I just feel like schematically there need to be some changes to make sure that the second tight end is, is getting used more frequently in the pass game, which eliminates defense defenses being able to have tendencies for you. So, hey, like last year, Tommy Tremble ran a pass route. I, I, I believe it was on like 37% of the snaps he was on the field. Well, that means you've got an over 6 out of 10 chance of saying he ain't running route. And then when you add in the routes that were short and underneath your sort of your no-cover zone, which are crossers and things like that, where you're not going to necessarily cover him, you're going to drop into your zone and just kind of let him get into his zone and then rally to the ball and tackle him for a three-yard gain. That number goes down into the 20 percentage. And so you know you got an eight to ten chance that that guy's not running more than five yards down the field if he even runs a pass route. That allows me as a defensive coordinator to play you more aggressively and to play your run game more aggressively. And, and so I think those are all things that if they are more effective using their tight ends from a, just getting them out on routes more, but then also using their tight ends to attack vertically more, you're going to see teams play. Because as we talked about in in our podcast, I believe it was yesterday, Michael Mayer according to Pro Football Focus, had three targets, three targets all year beyond 20 yards. You got to use them in, in more ways. Old Grim, good show, thanks. Thank you, Old Grim, appreciate it. Jordan, getting caught up. He's got some questions in here. Jordan says, because I thought the tight ends all looked fantastic in the passing game during the spring, so that's why you asked that question. Jordan Schreiber says, what type of offense was Reese involved in with at the Chargers? Does that give us a clue to a to a free reign offense he's going to run this year, hopefully? It was more of a pro style. I think, I think it was um, – they used to be the old coach of the Titans. I can't remember his name, but I believe that was their offensive coordinator in 2006. I cannot believe I'm, I'm drawing a blank on this. Let me look this up real quick. I'm going to be ticked as soon as I, as soon as I see it. But um, their offensive coordinator, was the, he was the head coach of the Titans a few years back. Let me find it here. Um, Ken Wisenhunt. He was the he was the Titan. Yeah, Titans. Okay, that that was our offensive coordinator in 2016. He's more of a pro style guy. I think that's not what most of Tommy's experience has been. I, I don't think that was a long enough tenure to really say that that's going to have a, a big influence on what he does schematically. You know, look if you really think about it, Tommy's early experiences in college were in Brian Kelly trying to run more of a spread offense. That was more pass oriented. So, if anything, he's got more of that experience in him than he does anything else. Chief Brody, uh, Stephen Martinez, about the questions of uh, uh, players that you'd want. He he would want Brady Quinn. 
Chief Brody says Brady Quinn, Golden Tate, Julian Love, Rocket. That's a good one. You didn't even go with five. You just felt you were so good with those four that you uh, you were set. Dembo, Brian Dembo says Jerome Bettis. Yeah, Jerome would be a beast, absolute beast in, in the modern game. Could you imagine him like on RPOs? Oh, my goodness. Steven says Brady Quinn, Julius Jones, Arnest Battle, Jalen Smith. That's a good list. It's a good list. Let's see, Michael Hughes, my five, Golson because of mobility, Quentin Nelson, Harrison Smith, Stanley, and Tate. Okay, mostly Brian Kelly guys. There you go. All right. There we go. Okay. Let's see here. Jordan asks, what are your thoughts on bringing some of the commitments and recruits onto your show for interviews, especially the ones you love, like Anthony Lucas, Blue and Gold, had Stacey and Raritan on at the same time on a Zoom? I don't really care care what blue and gold does to be honest with you but you know we've looked into that the problem is is right now i need to hire people that can cover recruiting first and so we just brought in blake uh blake sofa recently eric rudder has kind of been off and on with us but we're hoping to get him more involved again here soon but i i can't spend all day chasing down these guys you know mike singer can do that because all mike does is recruiting and that's not a knock it's just obvious i have a lot of other things going on and it can be difficult to get those kids scheduled for things but what I tell you to do, Jordan, is just be patient. You have a lot of fun things scheduled for you this summer. And it's not just about bringing recruits on, but it's also about um, some other things we have going on. The other part of that, too, is, is in the past, when we would bring recruits on at BGI, they didn't get a lot of action. And for whatever reason, now maybe that's changed now and, and we'll do some of those things, but it, it they weren't shows that necessarily generated a lot of interest. But uh, but just be patient. We have some fun things planned for you this summer. I just had a phone call yesterday with somebody. I'm very excited to to hopefully bring on in the show next week, which is going to be a lot of fun and talk offensive line uh, here moving forward. But I, I got some plans, so just stay tuned. We'll have some fun things for you this summer. Jordan also asked you said you had said Jenner generally gets their number one target for quarterback. Think they'll get Dante Moore? I don't know. I don't know. I think they have had a great deal of success getting their top quarterback target. Tyler Buckner was the, the only guy that they offered in that class. Drew Pine was their top quarterback target. Phil Dracovic was their top quarterback target. I don't want to say Deshaun Kaiser was their top quarterback target, but he was in that top group of guys that they liked. Uh, Brandon Wimbush was one of their top quarterback targets. So, I mean, they've had a lot of success getting their top. Gunnar Keel was their top quarterback target. Uh, so, yeah, I um, – I don't know if they'll get him. I think it's too early for that, Jordan. I mean, he's still just a sophomore. I think Michigan right now is his leader. But what I like about what Coach Reese is doing at quarterback is he's not just putting all his eggs in the Dante Moore basket. And and honestly, that's something that that maybe we should talk about soon. But one of the things I really like about what the staff is doing with the 22 class, and, and it's going to care over in the 23 classes, we're seeing them recruit the board better. And this is an expression I've used in the past, is you've got to recruit your board. And one of the criticisms I had of Lance Taylor recruiting running backs last year, Coach Quinn in 2020 with offensive line, is they didn't recruit the whole board. So when they missed on 2021, excuse me, with Coach Quinn. But when you miss on your top guys, you don't have that next guy that's already there you've built that relationship with. It was kind of like, well, we haven't paying attention to that guy because we thought we were going to get, you know, Landon Tangwall. And so we didn't put as much effort into Wyatt Milam. And then now when you miss on Tangwall, you can't go to Wyatt Milam. That was a mistake. They're doing a much better job to the point where I'm seeing all these, you know, people text me, this guy crystal balled so and so. I'm like, well, they got about nine receivers crystal balled to Notre Dame right now. Somebody does. Well, they're not signing nine receivers, you, you know. So I think they're doing a much better job of recruiting the board to where some of those guys who I don't think are takes right now think that they're takes or 
think that Notre Dame loves them. And so if they miss on certain players, then they can easily move on to these other guys without that player realizing that he wasn't their top guy. And I think that's a great way to recruit. And I, and I really like that the staff has, has gotten to that point. Jordan Schreiber said, I read today on 24-7 that Cardinal Tate said he talks to Reese every day. This is great news. If Notre Dame puts up 40 a game, does Notre Dame lock down a top five, even top three class in 2023? Uh, again, I don't know if that's going to happen from a recruiting ranking standpoint, simply because of the flawed nature of recruiting rankings. Um, from a practical standpoint, Jordan, Yes, I think if Notre Dame goes out there and, and puts up 40 points a game, two things are going to happen. Number one, they're going to win a lot of games. And number two, they're going to look a lot more exciting offensively, and I think that's going to impact them on the recruiting trail. But honestly, the last couple of years, in 2020 and 2021, wasn't the offensive recruiting that kept Notre Dame from being a top-five class. I mean, think about some of the talent that Notre Dame has landed the last few years. I mean, just this last year's class alone, you had top-100 quarterback, you had a top 100 wide receiver, two top 100 wide receivers. You had a top 100, 100 150 tight end. You had a five-star offensive lineman. You had another five, a, a top 100 offensive lineman. The problem was defense. You didn't bring in any top players on defense beyond uh, Kali and and, uh, and Gabriel Rubio. Same thing in 2019. I mean, you had Tosh Baker, top 100 recruit. Jordan Johnson, five-star. Chris Tyree, top 100 recruit. Drew Payne, top 150 recruit. You had a lot of top recruits. Michael Mayer was a five-star. They didn't bring as much in on defense. It's actually been the defense of recruiting that's been the difference, but that that's changed. With when The minute Marcus Freeman was hired, that changed. They got Tyson Ford. They got Aiden Cabrera. He offered, you know, they don't, they're not even in the ball game for Junior 2 Alamaca and Jalen Snead if, Clark, if Marcus Freeman's not here. I mean, you guys get that, right? Tula Alamaca didn't even have an offer. He was committed to USC when Marcus Freeman was hired. And Notre Dame pushing for him was one of the reasons that he decommitted. So I think that's been the, been the big thing. All righty. Liam says his top five is Michael Floyd, Aaron Taylor, Quentin Nelson, Bobby Taylor. Ooh, good one. And Terry Hanratty. I never saw Terry Hanratty play. Uh, DBZ says my top five, Rocket, Tate, Fuller, Quinn, and Smith. Good Lord. That <laughs> – could you imagine – an offense that had Rocket, Golden Tate, and Will Fuller at receiver with Brady Quinn at quarterback. That'd be absurd. Oh, that team would be fun to watch. Searcher Green says Brady, Quinn, uh, Quentin Nelson, Rocket, another Rocket, and another Rocket. There was no other Rockets, my friend. There was only one. There can only be one. Michael Morris says Brady Quinn, Rocket, Jerome Bettis, Aaron Taylor, Quentin Nelson. I think the defense is good the way that it is. I like your optimism about the defense. Jordan Schreiber says, are you going to ask Reese about developing players this year instead of when they're needed one, during one of the interviews? Uh, he's been asked about that. And again, I don't, he, he's just going to say, we've, we know the answer to that, right? We know the answer to that and, and we'll ask him and, and he'll give answers. But I mean, what are they going to say? Yeah, we've done a poor job of developing. We're going to try to get better about that. We've talked, we asked him about that. He talked about, you know, the young receivers that are developing and coming along, how they want to get those guys going and coach them up and get them ready. They're going to say all the right things. It's just at this point in time, it's not about asking them about it and us asking about it. It's not going to get them to change anything. He's got to go out there and he's got to get, get it done. Jordan says, love the show. Keep up the great work. Thank you. I especially like these set shows. So we know when they are every day. And, and just for people who are new to the show, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every day during the week, 
One o'clock, we have a show. One o'clock Eastern, we have a show. Wednesday night, most Wednesday nights, it's going to be at eight. We're all also going to have an additional 8 p.m. show that is uh, a recruiting show. So we are trying to have more regular shows, and we really like having the, um, uh, the, the live shows where people can ask questions. Chief Brody says, I was at the Michigan game in the student section, the worst night of my life. Yeah, and it was rainy and cold. Oh, I can imagine I've had to be outside during that. That's pretty terrible. Joseph Juan, I've seen no, that Notre Dame has already offered a couple of 2024 recruits. Does Notre Dame usually offer kids this early, and what are the pros and cons? I've never seen Notre Dame, Notre Dame offer a freshman. I remember how shocking it was the first couple of times they offered like sophomores. And I think Steve Elmer got offered as a sophomore. This is a new trend, and it's kind of – it's just the way that it's going. Recruiting has sped up so much. The, the pros, there's no cons to it unless you take a commitment. And the, the con to that is you have no clue how a kid is going to develop. None. Uh, pros are you get involved early and you can start building an early relationship. Get the kid on campus for games, get him to a summer camp, things like that. I mean, I think there's all, nothing but pros as long as you're not taking too many early commitments. you got to be very careful that you're not taking a ton of early commitments because you, know, you may say like they offered a defensive end recently. He's a heck of a player for a freshman. But what if he doesn't get any better? You, you don't have any idea. What if he gets hurt? What if there's all types of things that could go on? You don't know what kind of academics. You can't guarantee. You can't tell me that a kid's going to be able to get into Notre Dame's college. The kid, the linebacker they offer from Pennsylvania has doesn't even have one year of high school academics under his belt. There's so much work he has to do in the classroom to, to even be able to be considered to get into the class. And that's just any freshman because you've only been in high school for a year. But it is good practically to be able to get in there and talk about them you know, talk to the kids and, and start getting those offers and things like that going. John Klimek, any word if you're going to be able to go to attend a practice? I, none. And I, again, I'd be surprised if, if we're able to. Sean Davis, can you break down why Wisconsin is favored by four points against Notre Dame currently? What does Vegas know that we don't? I don't think Vegas knows anything that we don't. They're trying to get action on the game. Um, you know, I, I it, look, Believe what you want. Notre Dame went 11, what, 12, 10 and 2 last year. Wisconsin went 4 and 3. They look like crap going like 4 and 3. Um, if if I were you, I mean, if I was a betting man, I'm going to say if I were you because I'm not going to tell you what to do. If I was a betting man, which I'm not, I would take that. I'd be putting my money on Notre Dame. There's no question about it. Richard Robinson, love the channel, brother. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate that. The key to winning championships to me is QB. Any chance Irish land Manning? I think he would be the guy. Love our recruiting classes getting better each season. I don't think there's any chance that they land Arch Manning, and that's fine. If they get Dante Moore, if they get Ricky Collins, one of those two guys, I'll be just as excited. And honestly, in my opinion, if Arch Manning's name was Arch Johnson and he was not related to a former NFL quarterback's, I don't think that he would be ranked as high as he is. Now, he'd still be like a top 50 quarterback. Don't get me wrong. He is an outstanding prospect. But I think the people that people consider him this like generational prospect that's going to lead you to the promised land is because his name is Manning. And, and I don't mean any disrespect by that to the kid. He's a heck of a player. And if Notre Dame got him, that'd be a heck of a pickup. My point, however, is that I don't think people be ranking him over Dante Moore if his name wasn't Manning. Uh and, and you know, Ricky Collins, I get him not being ranked as high right now because he's still pretty raw. That kid has as tools as good as any quarterback in the class. So this is a loaded 2023 quarterback class. There's already five or six kids that if Notre Dame lands one of those five or six kids, I'm thrilled. Uh, and, and, and Manning is one of them. 
there's no question, but there are others. And if it's not a Manning or nothing kind of situation, Jeffrey Rohrbacher, Stanley Nelson, Harrison Smith, Jalen Smith, and Jimmy Clausen. People forget about how Cla- how accurate Clausen was. Give him some protection, and you don't need great receivers. I've I've made that argument before. My only concern about Jimmy was was he a guy that would inspire teammates, and that's why I call it, always kind of like Brady Quinn a little bit more. But yeah, that you give you give Jimmy Clausen this offense, he would be absolutely absolutely money. John Klimek, um, Let's see here. Uh, first of all, John, appreciate the super chat. Appreciate the support of the channel very, very, very much. As much as we talk about 40 points a game, a quarterback, I love how I feel Notre Dame's defense is going to be even better under Marcus, and that is a, that's a scary good defense. It absolutely is. I mean, it's it's kind of fun to be at a point where you kind of almost take them for granted. Um, you know, it it's um, – it's going to be a fun defense to watch this year, but it's also a deep and talented defense. It's it's part of it is about the coaching, and I think Mike Elson's done a great job defensive line. Clark Lee did a great job. I think Marcus Freeman is going to do a great job. I think Mike Mickens did a great job. I hear a lot of good things about Chris O'Leary. Nick Lazinski still around as, as a GA. He's a really good young coach. But, look, coaching can only take you so far. You need good, really, really good players, and I think Notre Dame has a lot of really, really good players. Just your ordinary Joe, strength conditioning is a black box to me. I never hear any details as to what exactly makes a strength conditioning substantially different under Matt Payless. So number one, even though Notre Dame has a long way to go when it comes to the nutrition program, uh, there's been a greater emphasis on strength and the the nutritional aspects of strength conditioning. Some other things, it's more practical uh, strength conditioning program in regards to it's not so much of the old school power lifting type of things. There is that, but it's geared more towards creating explosiveness. It's geared more towards functionality. It's geared more towards uh, creating a combination of explosiveness and endurance. It's about knowing how far to push players to where they think they've reached their breaking point, but you know that they can go more. There's a lot more uh, science involved in it. There's a lot more, um, technology involved in what Matt Bayless does to where he can track players to kind of, and they talk a lot about the GPS stuff. You know, you can find out like, what's the breaking point for a player in practice? When do we start to see him decrease? And then how can we then gear things towards making sure that we're pushing those players to where they can then perform at a high level even longer. And, and so, I, I mean, those are the things that I think makes it very different. Paul Longo was a, was a more old school guy. Uh, when it came to a lot of those things, than than Matt Bayless is. Matt Bayless is one of the old school strength and conditioning coaches that has adopted a lot of the newer school things. And a part of that was David, why they hired David Ballou initially from IMG, who went to Indiana and I now I believe he's at Alabama. And and they've carried on a lot of those things because it's something that Matt, Matt Bayless knew that they needed. Ethaniel, let's see here. Uh, ooh, here we go. A little touchy one. I hated when my teachers, coaches would parrot ESPN calling the Willingham firing racist. I kept telling them that the 2004 recruiting class got him fired and ESPN was clueless. But again, that kind of goes back to some things that we were talking about earlier. What is the point of ESPN? It's entertainment. It's creating interest. It's getting people to watch. It's why it's not an ESPN show, but it's why they have Skip Bayless on TV. Does anyone actually think Skip Bayless has paid millions and millions and millions of dollars? because of his analy- and his ability to analyze games or his knowledge of sports. No, he's he's 
it's just like most other people when it comes to that kind of stuff. It's he has this in, in ridiculously ridiculous personality that people flock to for whatever reason. Uh, you know, and that's what it's all about. It's about ratings. They didn't do their homework to find out that, you know, when when the number one quarterback in the country was on campus in Notre Dame, the AD had to call Tyrone Willingham and force him to get off the golf course to come spend time with that kid, that they had a GA meet the kid when he was on campus, a story that I heard back in the day, how lazy he was as a recruiter. I heard, because remember, when he was coaching, I had just gotten into coaching. And I remember sitting down with coaches in like Virginia and Maryland, and they're like, Notre Dame is the worst recruiting staff that we encounter. They're always late. They're super arrogant. And they think that they can just walk in here and our kids are supposed to, you know, worship them instead of them making, you know, our kids feel loved. I heard that time and time and time again. But that would then require a good journalism. And we we don't often see that at ESPN when it comes to those type of things. And B, it would require you to care more about the truth than you care about ratings and you care about money. And and I don't think that's ever been ESPN's deal. Um, that's just a fact. Coach, DBZ. Coach, if Notre Dame maximizes national uh, or name image likeness, could that affect uh, get us to a number one recruiting class on itself? I don't think so because, again, th- there's, there's a lot of flawed nature to the recruiting rankings. Remember, when Notre Dame used to finish with number one classes back in the Lou Holtz era, it was a very subjective ranking. Kind of like what SIL American does. SIL American looks at it and they look at talent. They look at depth. They look at, did you meet your needs? Is there balance in the class? It's not a points driven system. And the reason the Notre Dame is going to have a hard time becoming the number one school ranked class or even top three or top five. And they've had a couple. They had a, they had a top three class, top five class in 2013 is because there's a lot of geographical bias towards certain players. Number one, nowadays there's, there's even more, um, camp bias to, to those things. And the other part of it is, is it's just the points based. It's just, here's the number of players you sign. Here's the points given. There's no, you could not sign a quarterback and you're going to, you could have a top five class if you, if your points fit out. Whereas back in the day, it was more of a, boy, they landed depth. They landed impact players, all these positions. They met needs. You know, can, can, how can you have a number three ranked class if you didn't meet the needs that you had on your roster? But there's no way to evaluate meeting needs, balance, any of that stuff in a points-driven recruiting system. There just isn't. And yes, Alabama ranks very high, but the thing that's different about Alabama from Florida State or Alabama and USC, other teams that recruit top five classes regularly and don't win, is because Alabama actually puts together good classes that have balance and impact players. Whereas Florida State would sign a top five class and they'd sign two linemen who stunk, you know, but they had tons of running backs and receivers and DBs and linebackers. Even though their class was imbalanced and had holes, it was considered a top five class. And that's why I just don't put a lot on those things. Um, I am not bringing on Harry Heastan to talk O-line. I would love to. And I, you know, trust me, I'm, I would love to do that, but I don't see that happening. Uh, Sid Irish, Tyrone Willingham ruined two programs, and you're absolutely right. And he did the same thing to Washington that he did to Notre Dame, and even worse. Uh, Sid's five are Rocket, Rick Meyer, Jerome Bettis, Michael Floyd, and is that Aaron Taylor? I assume that's Aaron Taylor. Uh, Tommy Leonard has joined the show a little late, but we're happy to have you, Tommy. I'm sure you're just enjoying how wonderful the state of Virginia is, I'm sure. Uh, Chief Brody, expecting a Louisville 2009 type opening against Florida State this year. Defense under new DC might get ripped up early, but eventually team settles down and wins comfortably. Okay, couple things about that. Number one, I don't think the defense is going to get ripped early at all. I, I don't see that, especially against Florida State. 
if if Mackenzie Milton has time to throw in that game, I'm going to be very concerned about the Notre Dame defense. Number one. Number two, let's not forget that in Louisville in 2019, big reason why Notre Dame allowed that game, not allowed, reason why that game was close early is because because they lost Jafar Armstrong in the opening series. And they had built their entire game plan around Jafar Armstrong. So I get what you're saying. I don't think Mackenzie Milton's the kind of player that's going to give Notre Dame the problems that Jawan Pass did uh, because I don't see him being the runner that Jawan Pass was. And that was really the big issue that year. And I just think this defense is going to be better than that defense. Sean Rogers jump is just jumping on. Welcome to the show, Sean, playing catch up on chat. Let's see here. Jeffrey Rohrbacher, I was a 4'11", 120-pound first-day freshman year, graduated at 6'3", 195. That's exactly the point. I mean, and I actually would be a little concerned about guys that are already that mature as freshmen. They say, are how much better are they really going to get? Um, yeah, it's interesting. DBZ asked, realistically, could Notre- Williams and Tyree both have over 1,000 yards in total offense? Yes, absolutely. It, it, I wouldn't be shocked if it happens. I don't think they're both going to rush for a thousand, rush for a thousand yards to, to, you know, which a lot of times people ask, but could they both have a thousand yards in total offense? Absolutely. I, I absolutely, I could absolutely see that. So, you know, I, I think Chris Tyree, it'll be a little bit tougher just because of how much I think they're going to use Kyron Williams, but certainly, you know, certainly, I mean, last year, you know, we saw, you know, well, you use t- t- total offense. I think the 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 term we should probably use is 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 all purpose offense because total offense is just rushing and passing. Uh, so receiving doesn't count in that. But you, we're talking about like just all purpose. Then then yes. I mean, and honestly, if we're talking about all purpose, they had two thousand got two guys on a thousand yards last year because all purpose includes return game. And Chris Tyree had over a thousand yards when you include return game. But if we're just talking receiving and running. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kenny Moore says, I think Moore is better than Manning. I agree. And again, look, this is not a knock on Arch Manning. I think Arch Manning is a top 50 recruit. He is a really good recruit. And if Notre Dame got him, I'd be excited. But he's not a top five player It just based on skill. I just, I just don't think that he is. Now, could he be? Sure. He's only a sophomore. But right now, I think Dante Moore is a better prospect. I agree with you completely. I think right now, Malachi Nelson's a better prospect. Um. No question. No question. Let's see here. Any more questions? Uh, let's, I don't agree with this. No upside with Manning. If he does well, it's expected. If he doesn't work, it's an optics nightmare. I mean, there's there's upside because if he works, yeah, it's expected, but you're going to be really freaking good and you could win a national championship with him. So I, I definitely think there's upside, but I understand the point that if he doesn't pan out, you're going to get crushed for it. You're the only staff that could never develop a Manning. I get that, but I wouldn't worry too much about that. Jacob Steely asked, do coaches get bonuses for finishing with top five recruiting classes? I thought I heard that in the past, but based on who's ranking. I have said that about Georgia. I've been told that Georgia's coaches get bonuses for finishing the top five. I don't I don't know that Notre Dame's coaches do. I don't think that they do. And I I don't – I mean, to me, that's that's ridiculous. Last couple questions here, and we're going to wrap up. And I appreciate everybody for being a part of the show today. I appreciate John for, for his super chat and supporting the channel. I very, very much appreciate that. Sean Rogers asks, Brian, do you think any of the freshmen will, will, will be on campus in June can crack the two deep in that short of time? I would think Kali has the best shot thought. So, John, I am not going to answer your question. And the reason I'm not going to answer your question is because that is the topic of Monday's podcast and Monday show. So if I answered your question, 
then I'd have to think of something else to talk about on Monday. So hopefully, hopefully, Sean, you can wait a couple days to get that answer because that is something that I want to talk about. And, and this was an idea that was was brought up to me in a, in a private question and something that I had already planned to talk about and want to talk about was, you know, we saw what the early enrollees can do. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what we saw from them. But now there's that batch of, you know, Audric Estime, Logan Diggs, a running back. You're going to get Deion Colsey and Jaden Thomas showing up, Joe Alt and Pat Coogan show up. Um, Jason Onye shows up. Prince Collie is going to show up. We're going to see Chance Tucker and Jojo Johnson show up. And we're going to see Kerry G show up. So I definitely think there are some more players that will have an opportunity to crack the two deep. And we'll dive into that on Monday. So I appreciate the question. I think it's a great question, but um, I'd like to save that for Monday so we have more to talk about on Monday. But I do, I hopefully, Sean, you can tune in on Monday. It'll be at one o'clock Eastern, and we're going to talk about that on Monday. Jacob, appreciate the super chat, my man. I really, really appreciate it. I uh, always love when you all are able to not just be on the show, but able to, to support us. It's very, very exciting. And I'm hoping I can have some other good news on Monday's show, but I don't want to promise it just yet because there's still some things I've got to complete. Jeffrey Rohrbacher, talk about a lot of outside voices with a Manning on the roster. I don't agree with that. I think you're talking about the Manning family, and and it may be different, but when Cooper or when Eli and Peyton were in college, Archie was their dad. And and that is something that has been was documented at the time. It's something that's been documented since. He let the coaches coach, and he was their dad, and that was it. Uh, and so I don't think that would change. I think Eli and Peyton would allow the kid to go through their his experience just like they did. I don't think that would be an issue if I'm being honest with you. Chief Brody, appreciate you so much for the super chat. I really, really, really appreciate that. Love the show, Coach. And I, I these are these are literally like my favorite part of the day. I, I enjoy this so much. I enjoy being able to interact with y'all, answer questions. You all know I love to talk, right? So two hours of talking is no problem at all. But it, it is it's it's a lot of fun doing these shows, and I'm excited to see what they're going to be like when we get to the fall. Uh, I really can't wait for those, like the pregame and postgame podcast. We're going to have daily podcasts during the season as well. Those are going to be a lot, a lot of fun. Okay, here's uh, – all right, DBZ. Or no, we'll go back. John, we missed you up here, John. Here we go. All right, John says, Milton is happy to be playing again, but not happy to see his first game is against Notre Dame. I would imagine that is true, especially with the offensive line. Now, their offensive line is going to be a little better this year, but it, it's not going to be great at all. DBZ asks um, – Coach, in your honest opinion, if the offense catches up to the defense, can we win it all this year? Yeah, I think so. I do. Because part of it's luck, right? Like last year, Notre Dame's best team, the 2015 team with the right coaches would have had a hard time winning it all last year. That Bama team was just special. This year, I don't think Bama's going to be quite as good. Are they going to be great? Yeah. Are they going to be a playoff contender? Yeah. Are they going to be a title contender? Yeah. Is Clemson going to be a title contender? Yeah. Is Ohio State going to be a title contender? Yeah. But are they going to be as good as they've, you know, as Clemson was in 2018? I don't see it. Is Ohio State going to be as good as they were this past couple seasons? Uh, maybe. I don't think so. Is Alabama going to be quite as good? No. So if Notre Dame's offense becomes the top 10 unit that the defense is, could Notre Dame compete and possibly win a championship this year? Yeah, I, I believe so. Am I predicting it? You know, uh, not sure. But that's kind of that's what I'm I'm looking for. Chief, uh, I'm gonna get back to these questions. But Chief Brody says, uh, "Can't wait for the post game show." So we're still thinking about that. So I think what we're gonna do is because in the past we would have our post game show would be on Monday. We'd go and review the film. 
what I'm thinking about doing this year, and we're not sure on it yet, we got to figure out how to make it work practically, is to do a live show sometime after the game and just give like our initial reaction, allow you all to kind of share your opinions because obviously it'll be part of the live show. And then Monday, sort of do a a um, sort of a, you know, may call it something like, you know, after, you know, after the film room or something, or like, you know, something about like, okay, we've, 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 the emotional passed up part of it is down. We've been able to dive into the film and then here's what we see. That's kind of what we're thinking about. And, and at some point in time this summer, we're going to bring that up and see what everybody thinks. But that's what I'm leaning towards now, some sort of immediate post-game show afterwards. And this is the concern. DBZ, can you imagine that chat after a loss? That's kind of my my concern. And then this other part is plenty of night games this year. That's another part of the concern. But uh, but that's what we're thinking about doing right now. And uh, and, and we'll let you all know, know how that goes. Let's see here. Michael Morris asks, I think there's so much pressure on the Manny kid. It has to be overwhelming and then put Notre Dame in the mix. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a legitimate concern, but I think if anyone was capable of handling it, it's going to be a Manning because that's a very, that's a very solid family in, in a lot of ways. So I, I think the kid will handle it fine. I think the Peyton handled it fine. Eli handled it fine. And I think that, that Arch will handle it fine. And it's not his dad. He's not living up to his dad standard either. I think that's a little, it's like, it's, I mean, I know it's his uncle's, but it's different when you're in the same home with, you know, a, a great player. I just, I think he'll be okay. I think he'll be okay. Yeah. Sean Rogers. I look forward to Monday. Great mind singing. Like, okay, appreciate you, you being cool with me, not answering the question, but I really want to get to that. D rock with the reminder, hit the like button, hit the notification bell, subscribe to our podcast, hit the notification bell. So you always get those shows. And if you haven't signed up for it yet, please sign up for our Irish breakdown newsletter. You'll find it in the, uh, the text below, we have a link to it. It's free. You get it every day. It has links to all of our top stories. That's another way that you can help support our channel. Let's see here. Joseph Juan, is Sonny Styles visiting with his brother uh, going to be significant in his recruitment? Look, I think I think Lorenzo Styles Sr. and his wife did a tremendous job of allowing Lorenzo the Jr. to make what he felt was his best decision. And it wasn't go play where your dad went. It wasn't pushing him to Notre Dame. It was, I'm going to help you guide you to what you need to be looking into. But this is your life. This is your decision. And I think they're going to treat Sonny the same way. And I, and I, from what I've seen, they're going to treat Sonny the same way. Sonny is going to do what is best for Sonny, whether that's Ohio State, Notre Dame, or somebody else. Do I think Notre Dame has a great chance with Sonny? Absolutely. But I don't think the family thing will be necessarily the driving force that maybe some people think. I think if Notre Dame gets Sonny Styles, it's going to be because Notre Dame did a great job recruiting Sonny Styles, and he feels he fits into what they do defensively. It's because he has bought into what the the institution can do for him in life beyond football. It'll be all those type of things. Could the brother be sort of maybe that final? Okay, everything's equal. Okay, I want to play with my brother. Perhaps it could be, but I think ultimately it's going to be the other things that factor into his decision. Uh, <laughs> John says, oh man, it takes me two to three hours to chill out after a game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, now the thing is they won't be immediately after the game because I'll be at games. Vince and I, are, or hopefully both of us will be at games. So, you know, we got to finish up our work and get home. So, I mean, it's probably going to be at least an hour after the game that we would do it. So you have a little bit of time to chill out. 
Um, you know, and, and Jeffrey Warbuck says it used to take me two, three hours to chill out after game. Now I just wait to see what coach D has to say. Thorough analysis always keep, helps me keep my emotions in check. I appreciate that, Jeffrey. I really do. I appreciate that a lot. And that's why with my, my game observations, I try to keep it about football and not get the emotional response, but you know, I'm not gonna lie. I've driven home away from the stadium, really fired up from time to time or, or really pissed off from time to time. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, I try as best I can to take the fan out of it, but it, it's hard to. I mean, I was a Notre Dame fan my entire life. It's hard sometimes to not have a little bit of emotion, and that's why I don't want the post game shows to be immediately after the game. I want to be able to collect my thoughts, get my game observations out, and then uh, put a good show together. So that's what we're looking at uh, right now. So uh, we'll, uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do right now. So sh- that's it. Uh, Gold Grim, I usually pound on chairs even when they're winning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, D Rock, I used to throw stuff around the house. Okay. I hope your dogs or your children aren't around when that's going on. But uh, I, I love the emotion and the energy. And I think it's going to make for some really fun shows. And uh, we're going to have to make sure that we're, we're careful about the, the chats that some of the chats that we include in post game shows. But I'm looking forward to it because I love being a part of this community. I appreciate all of y'all that were uh, on the show today. I appreciate everyone that gave uh, that, that donated to the show at Super Chats. It's very much appreciated. We're going to be off for the next couple of days. Uh, wife goes shopping during games. That's smart. Uh, that's smart. Um, but uh, appreciate everybody being part of the show today. I hope everybody has a great, safe weekend. I would much rather be doing shows this weekend than all the yard work that I have to do this weekend. But I do need to get to that. We've got some articles. I'm kind of planning and plotting my my summer content plan, uh, working on trying to hire some recruiting people. I'm going to probably put a advertisement here. So I got a lot going on, and I need to get caught up this weekend. So we won't have a show this weekend. But we'll be back on Monday uh, with a show. We're going to talk recruiting on Monday. We're going to talk uh, get back to position previews on Tuesday, Wednesday. Wednesday night, we're going to talk Notre Dame's cornerback board. And then we'll be back on track. Thursday, we'll have a... I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about on Thursday. We'll, we'll figure something out. And then Friday, we'll be back to our mailbag. So if this is your first time listening, Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern, be ready, be locked in, be ready to have a show at Irish Breakdown, a live chat show. And then Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern, we'll have one as well. So everybody have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Check out Irish Breakdown. Like button, please. I beg of you, hit the like button. Have a great weekend, and we will talk to all of y'all very, very soon.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.